The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. From the outside, the house looked like just another villa on the beach on St. Thomas Island, part of the U.S. Virgin Islands. A tropical paradise full of palm trees and white sandy beaches where the weather pretty much stays between 70 and 90 degrees year-round. A popular Caribbean cruise ship destination full of timeshares, luxury resorts, banana daiquiris, rum punch, and vacation rentals. But this one villa, this villa didn't really have anything to do with island life or vacations. This villa was all about science. Kind of. Weird science. Really, really, really weird science. On the inside, the villa was home to the Dolphin Point Laboratory, a project born out of the mind of Dr. John C. Lilly, one of the most polarizing figures in American scientific history. Lilly was a highly educated and accomplished man, a medic, neurologist, inventor. He was a man with some very lofty goals, a man with some very uh, interesting beliefs, beliefs some other people in America's scientific and academic community were really excited by, at least at first, beliefs others thought were completely batshit crazy. Before creating his Dolphin Point Laboratory, Lilly had become obsessed with trying to communicate with highly intelligent extraterrestrials he felt would be landing on Earth uh, at any moment. Extraterrestrials he already believed were communicating with him subconsciously, mostly while he floated in a sensory deprivation chamber, guiding his life in ways that didn't always make explicitly clear. And Lilly got it in his head that the advanced communication abilities of dolphins, which he thought may include uh, telepathy, if properly and thoroughly unlocked, could then you know, uh, unlock humanity's ability to converse with visiting alien life forms. He wanted to bridge the so-called communication gap between humans and animals. And to do that, he'd use his house in St. Thomas, along with some NASA money, to conduct an experiment that started off as crazy and quickly spiraled into giving a dolphin hand jobs and letting the dolphin dry hump, a human living assistant researcher, and maybe more, all in the name of trying to get the dolphin to speak English so they could get the dolphin to help them talk to aliens. Uh-huh. Yeah, you just heard all that right. In the summer of 1965, the Dolphin Point Research Center on St. Thomas became a dolphin-human roommate situation, a dolphinarium in which Lily's assistant, 24-year-old local woman, Margaret Howe, 
volunteered to live in confinement with a young bottlenose dolphin named Peter. Six days a week, 24 hours a day. The couple's dolphin house was flooded with water, redesigned so that Margaret and Peter could live, sleep, eat, and learn together, and, yeah, do some other stuff. Total immersion, all in the name of quickly teaching a dolphin to literally speak English. To be able to pop out of the water and be like, hey, what's up? Oh, name's Peter. Let's talk about aliens. Lily in 1960 had predicted that human language speaking dolphins could be a reality within a decade or two. Spoiler alert, that didn't happen. He did not teach dolphins how to speak English. I think you know that. How game-changing would that have been? Some talking dolphin would have the most followers on TikTok right now. One of the Kardashians would have released a sex tape of them with a dolphin. Some dolphin would have the hottest mixtape of 2021 dropping bars with baby Gucci or Jody High Roller or something. Jody High Roller would probably be married to a dolphin posting on Instagram about how they're expecting a new human dolphin baby. Some dolphin would be a UN ambassador for the world's oceanic life. Another one would be the mayor of Atlantis. Dolphins can't speak English or any other human language, and they will never do so. Not based on what we know about them, right now at least. But Lily sure thought that they could. He believed that their language and their minds were just as complex as our own, maybe more complex in some ways. And he convinced Margaret Howe that bridging the dolphin-human communication gap was a major scientific breakthrough breakthrough, uh, she could help accomplish. She could help humanity talk to aliens by teaching a dolphin how to speak English. Did I mention Lily was way into acid? He would end up injecting dolphins with lots of LSD as well. He was on so much acid. The dolphins were on so much acid. And I have to think Margaret Howe was probably tripping balls as well, even though that's never explicitly stated. What is explicitly stated is that she had sex with a dolphin many times. And that sounds like something acid would uh, help you think was a good idea. As the weeks progressed that fateful summer, Lily's experiment took several turns, the most notorious of which was Margaret's decision to engage, of course, in a sexual relationship with Peter because she thought it would mellow him out and enable him to focus more on learning English. It did not. My God, this is going to be a weird one today. And I know that's saying a lot. It's almost always a weird one uh, here every day, but more so today. So much to learn on this week's How Could All of This Be True? Insanity, Tripping Balls, Fucking Dolphins, Experimental Edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Meat Sacks. Step on in inside the Cult of the Curious's virtual compound. Only the exceptionally curious should partake in today's lesson. It's not for anyone who isn't comfortable getting uh, so very strange. If bestiality really freaks you out and you just can't handle it, you might want to stop now. I'm Dan Cummins, a master sucker, suck nasty. Jimmy Tutons Rigettis, vocal coach. A guy who can't unsee any of what I saw researching uh, this week's topic. There, there's a lot of stuff on the internet. And you are listening to Time Suck. Hail Nimrod, praise Lucifina, be a good boy Bojangles, and uh, throw down a solid beat for us to learn to, Triple M. A couple quick announcements then show. Now in the store at badmagicmerch.com, our art warlock, Logan Keith, has designed a short and long sleeve shirt he's calling the Butterfly of Knowledge. Very psychedelic design, very appropriate for today's topic. A reminder that the October Bad Magic Charity of the Month is Rain, R-A-I-N-N, donating $15,600 to the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, America's largest anti-sexual violence organization. Go to rain.org, R-A-I-N-N.org to learn more. And now for a topic that combines uh, government-funded experiments, weird sex stuff, hallucinogenics, the possibility of extraterrestrial life, and oh, so much more. Set your watch to dolphin fucking o'clock. Oh, gosh dang. 
Back into the world of strange experiments today. We've actually met one of the stars of this week's topic, Dr. Lily, uh, before here on Time Suck. We met him briefly in our bonus episode on MK Ultra, the CIA mind control experiment. Of, of course, that's where we met him. Uh, the object of this week's experiment, as I stated in the episode opening, would be to, uh, you know, teach dolphins English. And not just so they could talk to aliens. The U.S. government helped fund this strange experiment. Also, uh, you know, for possible military applications like espionage, talking dolphins, particularly top secret talking dolphins other nations' governments don't yet know can talk. Well, they would make excellent spies. I also think the U.S. government helped fund this experiment because even scientists are still emotionally driven creatures, just like the rest of us meet sex. Wanting a dolphin to talk, believing that a dolphin might know telepathy, believing, believing aliens will soon visit Earth who can also speak telepathically. None of that has much basis in science. It has a lot of basis in emotion, a lot of basis in like, man, that'd be fucking cool. Let's see if we can do it. Uh, John C. Lilly was definitely an emotional scientist, no ordinary scientist. And the star of his human dolphin communication experiment, Margaret Howe, she wasn't a scientist at all. Isn't a scientist. She's still around. She was a, you know, just a lady who lived uh, on the island and loved dolphins. Uh, these two, definitely driven mostly by emotion. They weren't running around wearing lab coats, carefully checking their notes, compiling them into spreadsheets, making sure the results of their experiments weren't contaminated. No, they were just uh, really, really hoping they could use some basic behaviorist techniques to get a horny dolphin to say hello. They were driven to try and talk with dolphins, not out of any real scientific basis, but instead out of an overwhelming feeling that human beings were just being narcissistic to think that we're the only creatures on this planet capable of advanced language skills, you know, advanced as we currently possess. Even if there is no evidence to suggest that any other animal is as smart as we are at all, like none at all. Sorry, animal lovers. I, uh, I love animals as well, but they're just not in the same brain weight class, no matter how much we want them to be. Dolphins, other primates, uh, they're fighting for an extremely distant second place. Planet of the Apes, any and all other similar movies, uh, fiction. But John and Margaret didn't want to believe that. They saw the human race's dominion over other animals as cruel, misinformed, narrow-minded, and self-centered. Instead of real scientists who rely on unemotional, tested, and empirically-based information to better understand the world around them and all its creatures and universe, uh, Margaret and John conducted this experiment through some type of hippie, free-love life lens. They approached it from a perspective of dolphins being our intellectual equals. We just need to learn how to talk to them. And that's a very sweet and feel-good notion, but not true. To break this strange story down today, we'll first look into the history of trying to teach animals to talk, then we'll take a closer look at why dolphins seem to uh, Lily to be a good candidate for that experiment. Next, we'll examine dolphin sexual anatomy. If we're going to talk about dolphin fucking today, and we are going to do that. We need, under, we need to understand what, what kind of heat they're packing. What are they, what do they got going on down there? Uh, and then before we get into our dolphin sex filled time suck timeline and this insane summer of the Dolphin Point lab experiment, uh, we'll meet John C. Lilly and Margaret Howe. This, this episode is, uh, for if you don't find this episode interesting, I just, I don't understand you on any level. Uh, let's begin. Teaching animals to talk. Animals able to communicate just as complexly as we humans can. Uh, this has been an object of human fascination for centuries. Showing up in countless stories, fables, movies, TV shows. I mean, I'd love for this to be possible. Who wouldn't? Who wouldn't like to talk to their furry best friend roommate or get to know what birds are really thinking when they sit outside your window squawking? Lindsay and I and the kids, Kyler Monroe, we talk all the time about what our two Australian Labradoodles, Penny and Ginger, a.k.a. Gigi, a.k.a. Didi, oh, Didi, what are they thinking? We, strong, we strongly assume that Penny's a lot smarter than Gigi, also bossier, possibly cruel, but is any of that true, right? Is Gigi, is Didi, is Gigi really just a lovable idiot? 
What are we basing either one of their intelligence, uh, uh, you know, uh, cap capabilities on? Physical appearance, I think mostly, right? Gigi has dopey eyes and Penny has highly alert eyes. She, she looks smarter to us. But what if they could both actually talk? Maybe Gigi would, would be smarter. Maybe she just laid back, really has a lot going on upstairs. Dopey eyes and an active mind. Maybe she's a big daydreamer, a poet, philosopher. Maybe Penny's assertive and confident nature, right? Her hyper-focused and steely stare is just about uh, wanting food. She just really, really wants you to give her a treat and thinks that, you know, boring into your soul will help accomplish that. Maybe it's not about, you know, advanced intelligence. So hard to know for sure when neither one of them can talk to us. Uh, yeah, most people, I think, want animals to be able to talk or think it'd be very cool. My favorite comic strip of all time, The Far Side by Gary Larson, right? Mostly about talking non-human creatures, the personification of animals, insects, a guy and his dog are in, the, in the living room, both holding up rolled up magazines, you know, the kind a lot of pet owners have used to discipline their their dogs, you know, over the years with, smack their butts with. The dog's uh, talking to the owner and says, no way, I'll put my magazine down when you put yours down. Another far side shows a dog put on a slide presentation for other dogs. Current slide features a picture of a cat, hair raised on its back, claws out, hissing. The dog presenting says, now on this slide, we can see how the cornered cat has seemed to suddenly grow bigger. Trickery, trickery, trickery. I realize so much is lost when you don't see the, the drawings, but you get it. Talking animals, you know, thinking, uh, you know, uh, about animal shit like a human would. It's, it's fun. People love personification. So many of the best cartoon movies are made about talking animals. The Disney empire mostly built on talking animals. We fucking love it. We desperately want to know what all these creatures, big and small around us are thinking and saying to one another. I've come across some chittering squirrels that I've assumed were telling me some equivalent of just fuck off, get out of here. But is that what they were really doing? Was it that complex of a thought? No, probably not. But I wanted it to be. Also, some animals do clearly demonstrate, you know, some ability to truly communicate with us. We know they understand at least some of what we're saying. We communicate with them on some level. But is it possible to communicate more deeply? Lily thought so, wanted to prove it. For at least 200 years, researchers have reported several instances of non-human animals demonstrating remarkable language-like capabilities. Unfortunately, some of the best of these demonstrations have been hoaxes. And a lot of people still familiar with the demonstrations don't remember the exposed for being a hoax part. They just remember the demonstration. Unfortunately, that's such a common way that misinformation is spread. Too many people remember the headline presented as truth. Too few pay attention to the retraction. The next day, the next week, or the next year, the truth being exposed as a hoax at some later point. Uh, one famous example is a hoax involving a horse named Clever Hans. Hans appeared to be capable of responding to simple arithmetic calculations with accuracy. When asked, what is two plus two? You know, he'd tap his hoof four times. Hans amazed both the general public and leading psychologists of the day for years with his apparent ability to perform arithmetic functions, identify colors, read and spell, even identify musical tones. He was written about in the New York Times in 1904 as a horse truly capable of understanding a decent amount of English and one with a pretty good grasp of basic math. But then a group of 13 people called the Hans Commission investigated the claims, a group that included veterinarian, circus manager, cavalry officer, number of school teachers, the director of the Berlin Zoological Gardens, and they came to the conclusion that some trickery was afoot. And then psychologist and comparative biologist, Oscar Funkst, after reading the commission's findings, analyzed the horse in 1907 and concluded that Hans was just responding to handler's cues rather than showing that it could understand human speech. The handler was doing the math and giving Hans some signals. Hans was indeed clever to keep a close eye on the handler, but not clever enough to actually understand arithmetic. The name Clever Hans effect was then given to the phenomenon of a handler 
influencing an animal's responses, especially in experiments designed to showcase the animal's intelligence. In more recent years, scientists have worked harder to develop methods that remove human presence and influence from animal cognition studies. In the mid-20th century, studies about animal intelligence and language capabilities would really take off. In the late 1950s, primates became the focus of studies on the linguistic abilities of non-human animals, particularly chimpanzees. There was the hope that primates, like, you know, Lily hoped uh, would happen with dolphins, you know, would actually learn how to speak human languages. This has never panned out. For decades, it was thought that chimps couldn't speak English because they just didn't have the right vocal anatomy to produce sounds necessary to speak English. But that's a myth, one that persisted for much of the 20th century. Now scientists understand that chimps, they do have the right physical tools. They have a flexible larynx, lips and vocal tracts required for speech, but their brains simply are not wired to speak like we do. Kind of like parrots. Parrots are really good, the best, at producing human-like English in terms of sound alone. They have thick, complexly muscled vocal tracts, very flexible tongues, but their little parrot brains do not allow them to be much of anything other than a mimic. They can't comprehend enough to truly communicate consistently and effectively at some kind of adult conversational human level. They can repeat things. All this makes me think, in addition to being really cool, it would also be really sad in some ways if animals could talk like we do. You know, I'd be pretty hard on the human ego. I mean, how disheartening would that be if, if you could only speak one language like me and at times not even extremely fluently and, and then you, you, know, you read some article about or watch some video about a fucking chimpanzee who's fluent in English, Spanish, Mandarin, Chinese, Russian. You're working at the Dollar General, worried about rent. Meanwhile, some chimp is knocking down six figures, working as a translator for the UN or some shit. <laughs> we don't, maybe we wouldn't want them to be as smart as sometimes we think we do. Uh, one of the first landmark language comprehension programs with primates was the Washoe Project which began in 1967 at the University of Nevada in Reno. Huh. We never guessed that Reno uh, would be where this took place. If someone asked me, like, where, where did a 1967 landmark language comprehension program with primates take place? Nairobi? No? Not London? Huh. Berkeley? Beijing? Reno? Really? I would have pegged Reno for a landmark bowling or slot machine or bingo study. Not primates. After figuring out uh, that, the, that Washoe, a young chimp, wasn't learning spoken English, scientists theorized that since chimps communicated with each other via body language in the wild, they might be able to teach the chimps ASL, American Sign Language. When the project first began, the researchers would, uh, they would repeat signs over and over again so that Washoe could learn to associate the sign with a particular object or action. And one example, the ASL signal for the word more involves bringing the hands together and touching together the tips of your fingers. Since Washoe was fond of being tickled, they started showing her the sign when she was getting tickled and soon she was asking for more. Kind of a dangerous game asking for more tickles, Washo. Also kind of fucked up that they taught Washo to ask for more tickles before they tried to teach her how to tell, uh, you know, people to stop tickling her. <laughs> Those researchers were lucky that too much tickling didn't lead to someone's face getting eaten or someone's balls getting ripped off. Not making up those kind of attacks either. You can find numerous examples online of chimps uh, essentially biting and or ripping someone's face off or uh, ripping someone's balls off. What an insane assault to survive, by the way, to not be able to have kids because a chimp ripped your nuts off. No, Linda, I do want to start a family, but you know, the chimp accident. Come on. Uh, anyway, while trying to teach Washoe to sign for more, the researchers needed to make her understand that a reflex was not the same as a deliberate action and that she wasn't learning the sign for tickle or love or anything else. So when she cringed from being tickled or got overstimulated, they would immediately pull her hands apart and the tickling would only stop or would stop to try and instill a direct association with that sign and only that action. 
When Washoe brought her arms together again, she would get tickled again. Then once that association was made, they needed to demonstrate that more could apply to more than tickling. To do that, they invented a game where Washoe would be pulled around in a laundry basket. When they stopped pulling her, she could tell them to start again if she made that sign for more. It didn't take her long to make this connection as well. And then soon Washoe realized that more could be applied to food, treats, you know, uh, other activities, anything else you wanted. So very cool breakthrough. They truly taught a chimp to understand to understand the sign for more. If my dog Penny knew that sign, I feel like she would walk over to the drawer where we keep her treats in the kitchen and she would make that sign, I don't know, around a thousand times a day. Uh, this research would, of course, now be taken further and given more funding and soon more and more primates could use sign language to various degrees. The next Trying to Teach Other Animals to Talk project took off in 1971, the Lena Project. Dwayne Rumbaugh and Erst von Glasserfield, two researchers at the Yerkes National Primate Research Center in Atlanta, part of Emory University, led a team of scientists who made a computer-based language training system. Lena was a female chimpanzee that these scientists taught to use a keyboard. Lena did very well with lexigram research, was able to distinguish many terms and relate them to symbols. A lexigram is a symbol that relates to a term or idea. When these symbols were pressed, the speaker would play the word in English. The lexigram would be shown on a video monitor. Using these symbol-based buttons, Lena could tell a lab assistant to do things like refill her treats. She could also request items that weren't in the lab that she couldn't see, which told researchers she'd formed an association between the object and the lexigram that had stuck in her brain. After over five years of training, she could eventually form simple sentences using that keyboard, like, please, Tim, tickle Lena. But that was as far as they ever got. You know, super impressive, but a long way from communicating like a human. I mean, if your name's Tyrone and you have a friend named Joel, and the most advanced thing Joel can say is, please, Tyrone, tickle Joel. <laughs> you're not going to think, God damn, Joel's a fucking genius. No, you're going to think Joel is, you know, not too intellectually sophisticated. And in that specific example, you're going to think Joel's fucking creepy. We're continually asking you to tickle him. Uh, arguably the most famous primate who was the subject of an experiment uh, involving trying to teach an animal to talk to humans being uh, trained while the Lena Project uh, was just getting started is Coco the Gorilla. Coco, just a year old in 1972, when she began her career as a student of human language. Born in the San Francisco Zoo, uh, early on, two Stanford researchers, Francine Patterson and Charles Pasternak, they took her to a sanctuary near Woodside, California, in the Santa Cruz Mountains. Unlike Washoe, she was taught sign language and the sound of a word at the same time. And within just two weeks, she learned how to make the signs for water and food. In the span of four years, she learned over 200 signs. And then you could talk to her. You know, you didn't have to always talk to her in uh, sign language. You could talk to her verbally in English. She would respond in sign language. Uh, when tested for comprehension, Coco scored well. Not near human capability, but she could form unique combinations of signs for things, demonstrating a pretty advanced understanding of how language works. Like she knew the signs uh, for the words bracelet and finger. She did not know the sign for ring. But when presented with a ring and asked what the ring was all on her own, she came up with finger bracelet. So that's pretty fucking cool. As stories of her abilities spread through the scientific world and beyond, Coco became an international celebrity with a vocabulary eventually exceeding a thousand signs and the ability to understand roughly 2,000 words of spoken English. National Geographic uh, featured Coco on its cover twice, first in October 1978 with a photograph that she took of herself in a mirror. Gorilla selfie. Nice! Uh, also appeared a second time on the cover in January 1985 uh, accompanied by a story about Coco and one of her pet kittens. She would have several. She would name them herself. I love the names of her kittens. All Ball, Lips, Smokey, and my favorite, Devil Tooth. Huh? I've had a few cats that that would be an apt name for. Feisty little bastards, quick to bite when you're not, you know, giving them what they want or they get overstimulated. 
Uh, among the many human-like traits that made Coco special, well, she seemed to have a sense of humor, even a bit of playful mischievousness. She played around with language like so many of us meat sacks do as well. Like here's an example. Cynthia Gorney, a contributing writer for National Geographic, interviewed Coco in 1985. And at first, Coco did not seem to warm up to take well to Gorney. <laughs> and using sign language, called her a toilet. I fucking love that. Coco's handler then reprimanded her saying, Coco, that's not nice. That's not a nice thing to say to somebody. And then she seemed to smile. So great. She told the journalists as best as she knew how that she was shit. And maybe she was, right? Never met her. I love that Coco knew how to curse. I wonder if one of the experimenters or someone just hanging around the lab secretly taught Coco to call people toilets. Uh, not gonna lie, I would for sure do that. Or better though, you know, if Coco on her own knew that toilets contained shit and that some people reminded her of shit. Uh, Coco did end up warming up to Cynthia Gorney, and when Gorney asked Coco where gorillas go when they die, this is pretty crazy, she signed comfortable whole by. Comfortable whole by, as in buried and gone, maybe? Interesting. Uh, besides her National Geographic coverage, Coco appeared in several documentaries and famously interacted with actor and former suck subject Robin Williams in a 2001 video in which she played with Williams and tried on his glasses. Pretty adorable video, about five minutes long, may or may not fire up your allergies. They kind of mess with your tear glands. Uh, those two seem to genuinely have a good time together, goofing around, making each other laugh. Man, Robin Williams could even crack up a gorilla. There's video proof. Coco died in June of 2018, the ripe old gorilla age of 46, outliving the average lifespan of gorillas in the wild by over five years. They generally live 30 to 40 years. Uh, and she was healthy right up until the end. Even though she lived a long time, longer than you know uh, she was supposed to, her death still took researchers who worked with her by surprise because she was so with it right up until she just passed away. Uh, last thing about Coco. This is so fucking absurd. <laughs> Coco had a strong fascination with nipples, both male and female. She liked to show you her nipples, and she liked to see and touch your nipples. You can find a clip of this as well online. Robin Williams would joke about Coco holding him by the nipples on one of his stand-up specials. You can just find it on YouTube if you just put Robin Williams Coco uh, in the search bar there. And because America... In 2005, three female researchers quit working with Coco and then sued the Gorilla Foundation where Coco lived basically over sexual harassment dished out by a fucking gorilla. They said they felt pressured to show Coco their nipples and their lawsuits were settled out of court. Jesus Christ. Show the fucking pervy ape your nipples already or get a new job working with a gorilla who doesn't want to see those sweet, sweet nips. If I took a job working with animals and one of the animals, you know, could communicate well enough to ask me to show, <laughs> show the, the animal my dick, I would either just show my dick. I probably would. I don't care about nudity. To me, it's a, some kind of weird American hang up, whatever. Show the fucking monkey your dick. Or I do the, the practical thing and start looking for a new job where I didn't have to, you know, show a monkey my dick or show a girl my dick or whatever. I would for sure not quit and then sue over the request of a fucking gorilla. Lawsuits in this country. Get the fuck out of here with so much of this weak ass shit. Maybe there's more to it, but maybe not. Uh, another talking animal has made headlines earlier this year. This is pretty adorable. Bunny, a TikTok famous sheepadoodle, sheepdog and doodle uh, poodle, uh, has gone viral in recent months for show, uh, short videos showing her using a soundboard with different nouns to form short sentences. A few years back, Bunny's owner, Alexis, uh, I think she's over in Tacoma, had a soundboard made up of circular buttons after watching videos of another dog, Stella, using a soundboard. Each button dictates a word when pressed. By pawn these buttons, Bunny started communicating. Alexis originally began with one button outside, you know, to head out the door. Unlike most dogs who can recognize sit, stay, treat, and walk, uh, Bunny can actually generate sentences from 92 uh, words, this 92-word vocabulary. There's all these different buttons. 
She can tell her owner to go outside. She can call someone a stranger. She can identify various parts of her own body. Even, <laughs> this is my favorite, even tell people to shut up. Uh, in her words, it's uh, buttons, it's settle down. And I watched a video where she told her owner to shut up and take her for a walk. <laughs> uh, nice. I knew Penny and Gigi could understand quite a bit. Also, both of them for sure would tell Lindsay and I to shut up if they could. They sleep in our bed with us. And if they're trying to go to sleep at night and we're talking, they'll let out these super dramatic loud exhales. Just, <sighs> or make these little like, you're annoying me groans. They're sassy little bitches. But we love them. Praise Bojangles. Please watch over and protect them. Our recent scientific research has proven a lot of dogs are pretty damn smart when it comes to language recognition. In 2017, Gregory Burns, professor of neuroeconomics at Emory University, led a training program that taught dogs to walk in an fMRI scanner without sedation or restraint. And then with the dogs inside, their owners could list the names of surrounding objects and toys alongside occasional gibberish. The scans showed that the dogs' brains could quickly discriminate between words that they knew and unfamiliar words and or nonsense. The scans also revealed that the dogs seemed to make no distinction between words that differed by a single speech sound, like paw and pow, pretty much the same to them. Research has led uh, some to think that we might not be that far away from pet translators. And according to an Amazon-sponsored study, some type of pet translator could be on the market within 10 years. With the help of artificial intelligence, scientists are already learning how to translate animals' vocalizations and facial expressions into words that we can understand. A pet translator. That sounds wild. I wonder how many pet owners would be so disappointed by what their dogs are saying though, right? Like, yeah, they can technically talk now, but just saying just so much dumb shit. Hey, Bojangles, what's going on, bud? I like licking my balls. I know. Okay, I know, Bojangles. I like licking my balls. I know, buddy, we, we all know. I'm going to lick my balls. Feels good. Okay. <laughs> Not every thought needs to be expressed. Do you want to lick my balls? All right, let's go outside. I think I saw a bird in the yard. Bird. Uh, it all reminds me of that Disney movie Up, right? The dog with the collar that allows it to talk. Squirrel! Uh, while all this is super cool, it does not equate to a human-like understanding of language. Yes, some animals have been able to string together a few short st statements, right? A few short words after years of training. And that's very impressive. But John C. Lilly thought for a while that the training could, you know, be taken so much farther. You know, and that just doesn't seem to be uh, possible based on what researchers have discovered over the years. So why not? Why isn't it possible? Well, we've already talked about how animals either lack the proper vocal equipment to mimic human language or lack the proper brain development or both. Also, in terms of brain function, they don't seem to have the cognitive functional ability to move beyond a toddler's level of communication. Uh, check out this experiment. In a 2001 issue of the Journal of Comparative Psychology, a team of researchers shared their findings on a study conducted on dogs and on four to six-year-old children. The dogs and children were first shown a desirable object in a container. Next, a person holding the container passed behind three screens, and then the container was shown to be empty. The dogs and the children were then allowed to search for the object behind the screens. While children tended to increase their speed of checking behind the, uh, the third screen after failing to find the object behind the first two, the dogs tended to significantly decrease their speed of checking behind the third screen after they failed the first two times. Now, what does that mean? It means that children are capable of something called disjunctive, inter uh, disjunctive inference basically putting together limited information in a way that we would call logical. The dogs, however, not motivated by logic, just association. They couldn't deduce that if someone had an object before walking behind three screens and then didn't have it after walking, you know, behind them, the object was, you know, going to be behind one of those three screens in all likelihood. And then if you didn't find it between the first two, there's a very good chance it was going to be behind the third screen. Sorry, Bojangles, you're brave and you fight for freedom and you're immortal, but maybe not very smart. <laughs> JK, you're God. 
You're a god. Uh, forgive me for my mockery. Uh, the doc study concluded with the, there, there is as yet no compelling evidence for successful logical reasoning using the disjunctive syllogism in non-human animals. So, womp womp. Emotionally, I'm motivated to ignore that evidence because it brings me too much joy to think about Penny and Gigi not just being able to use logic, but to actually uh, be able to scheme and stuff. I like to pretend that Penny is an evil mastermind continually plotting for Gigi's downfall. Uh, another essential characteristic of human language that no other animal seems to have the ability to grasp is normativi normativity. In the context of language comprehension, normativity refers to the ability to understand that there are right and wrong uses of a word or phrase. We understand, for instance, at least some of us, that we can sometimes use a certain word incorrectly or if we don't yet know how to use it correctly. An animal's use of language does not have that aspect. An animal might use a sign the way we intended it to be used or it might not use a sign that way but the animal itself doesn't understand that it uh, doesn't know how to use the sign or that it has used it incorrectly until it's been told that it was incorrect. Understanding the idea of a mistake or of normativity depends on the ability to understand that something is not right. And since animals can't seem, according to all research thus far, to understand that, their ability to understand how language works is, you know, severely limited. Why then did John C. Lilly think that he could teach English to dolphins? Well, to be fair to that maniac, uh, a lot of this research, most of it, has been conducted since his crazy-ass dolphin experiment, not before. Why he focused on dolphins relates to his knowledge of brain structure. He was a smart guy, anyways. Uh, part of the, a part of the brain known as the Broca's area in the cerebrum, the anterior and largest part of our brain, is an area closely associated with speech comprehension. In the Broca's area, scientists have, have observed uh, certain neurological pathways that are thought to be instrumental in our ability to speak. Most other animals' brains don't seem to have these neurological pathways, but parrots, bats, and dolphins do. And dolphins are arguably the cutest member of this group, so I can see why Lily wanted to spend a lot of time with him. Uh, also, dolphins' brains are bigger than the brains of bats and parrots. So they do make a great example, or they do, you know, they are the, 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 the most logical example of an animal you, you would, you know, could be led to think would have the most advanced communication abilities and, and possibly human-like communication abilities. Uh, bottlenose dolphins in particular have bigger brains than humans, 1,600 grams versus 1,300 grams. They have a brain-to-body weight ratio greater than great apes do, but lower than humans, making them the second most encephalized beings on the planet. Let's really dive into talking about dolphins now. Why were they, yeah, just, you know, about why they were considered such a good candidate to speak with. Uh, they're good for more than being just the frequent subject of tattoo artwork found on attractive women's lower backs. They're also pretty incredible creatures. They're socially skilled, agile, joyful, uh, playful. They share many emotional similarities with humans and they are very intelligent. Dolphins' brain to body, body ratio, pretty good indicator of overall intelligence in animals is second, yeah, only to humans. Cognitively, they are also one of the very few animals on earth able to pass self-awareness tests and mirrors. They can recognize themselves and others. Dogs, for example, while pretty smart, easy bojangles, they do not have the ability to recognize their own reflection in a mirror the way humans and some other animals are able to. They will always treat the reflection like another dog or just simply ignore it. So true. Poor Didi. Poor Gigi. She used to keep a real close eye on herself in the mirror at the bottom of the stairs that we don't have anymore. Like she would stare at herself sometimes for over an hour, like a, in a tense, a tense stare session. <laughs> sometimes she'd bark and growl. She'd scare herself by moving too fast and think the other dog was moving fast too. Uh, sometimes, I, sometimes I used to worry that maybe she was looking at ghosts or demons or something. Nope, just herself. Just weirded out by herself because she thought it was another dog. Unless some additional animals have passed the test in the last six years, according to a 2015 BBC article, only eight non-human animals can definitely pass the mirror test with one additional 
Probably. Not every individual of these uh, species can pass it, by the way, just some of them. Asian elephants, Eurasian magpies, uh, bonobos, chimpanzees, orangutans, gorillas, manta rays are the maybe slash probably, bottlenose dolphins, and nine would have never guessed this one in a million years. Do you want to take a second to guess? Unicorns. Unicorns can not only recognize themselves and others in mirrors, they can also walk in and out of mirrors, using them as portals, not only essentially teleport from one part of the world to another, they can also bend space and time. Uh, uh, David Hatcher Childers here, a time suck resident cryptozoologist, uh, former University of Montana student, uh, Gil Grace. Unicorns have been theorized to possess uh, many different powers. They can likely fulfill wishes uh, to those true of heart, detect lies, and their horns can cure disease and heal deadly wounds. But I have never heard of them being able to walk in and out of mirrors or anything of that. Uh, David? Uh, yes, Dan. Uh, David, I was kidding. That was that was a joke. Oh, I just, um, oh, okay. I just, I heard unicorns and I, I didn't want you to embarrass yourself or, or anything. Uh, David, uh, do, do you want to go wait out in the hall? Uh, yeah, 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 sure. No, that's no problem. Uh, uh, please be sure and just tell everyone about my new show on AMG. Uh, m- maybe it's Giants. Sorry about that interruption. Uh, can't seem to fully shake David Hatcher Childress from Ancient Aliens. The ninth creature I was going to mention, one that for sure passes the mirror tests, not kidding this time, ants. Fucking ants. And their teeny tiny little brains. In 2015, scientists published research that suggests some ants can definitely recognize themselves when looking in a mirror. When viewing other ants through glass, ants did not divert from their normal behaviors in this experiment. Uh, specifically, if you're a big ant nerd, scientists tested three different species in the uh, Mamurka genus of ants for this experiment. And while their behavior did not change when they saw other identical-looking ants through the glass, is it is it antist? I think they all look the same. Their behavior did change when they were put in front of a mirror. When put in front of a mirror, the ants would start to move slowly. They would turn their heads back and forth, shake their antenna, touch the mirror, clearly intrigued, clearly a little bit of like, hey, what's going on here? They'd retreat, they'd reapproach the mirror. Sometimes they'd start to use the mirror to groom themselves. And then the ants were, uh, you know, given a more revealing mirror test. The same team of researchers would use blue dots to mark the uh, uh, clip, clipias, clipias of some of the ants, which is a part of their face to their mouths. Uh, when in an environment without mirrors, these ants would behave normally, would not touch the markings on their face, seemed to have no idea they were there. But this would change when they could see the reflections in a mirror. The ants with blue dots on their face would go groom and appear to try to take the marking off to try and remove it. Very young ants, other ants with brown dots that blended in with the color of their face did not clean themselves. Interestingly, uh, neither did ants with blue dots put onto the back of their heads where they couldn't see it in the reflection. So pretty crazy. Also pretty mean (laughs) to the ants with the blue dots. They couldn't get off their faces. Just left them there in front of that mirror. Just like, what the fuck? Who did this? Mark? Jimmy? Terrell, Wang, Jose, Skeeter, who the fuck did it? Uh, Back to dolphins now. I just found all that very interesting and surprising. We must keep an eye on ants before they rise up and take over. There's a million billion ants on earth. God knows how many of them are those paralyzing three-inch-long killer ants out there waiting to eat our heads off our necks. Ombre Asino ants. Study's real, but that species of ant is not. If you're you're not a long-term sucker and don't recognize the Ombre Asino monster. Uh, Dolphins, though, supposed to be talking about dolphins. In addition to being able to pass the mirror test, dolphins uh, also do drugs. Not kidding. Uh, they like recreational drugs. They like to chew lightly on pufferfish. Pufferfish, one of the most poisonous fish in the ocean. They exude a powerful nerve poison that can kill a large mammal in pretty small doses. But in teeny tiny doses, 
when ingested by dolphins, uh, you know, known to seek them out, but never eat them, just kind of just kind of barely nibble on them. It seems to provide a narcotic effect. Puffer fish, aka dolphin coke, aka dolphin whipple. Uh, backing up for a second, there are a lot of different types of dolphins. Not all of them are of equal intelligence. Currently, there are 49 dolphin porpoise species grouped into six families. The oceanic dolphin family, by far the largest, with 38 members. Porpoise family has seven members and uh, four river dolphin families, each with just one species left. Did you know that river dolphins was a thing? I didn't. They only live in Asia and South America. Mostly just a couple large rivers uh, in India and in the Amazon. Uh, wild. I wish the rivers around here were full of dolphins. Seeing a dolphin in the river would be incredible, especially on shrooms, right? I think if I did that, I would th think that I just had died and gone to heaven. Uh, Peter, who would be trained as part of the Dolphin Point Lab experiment, was a bottlenose dolphin. Bottlenose dolphins seem to be the smartest dolphins in the world, although that's not known for certain. River dolphins, for example, have not been studied that thoroughly because they don't survive well at all in captivity. Uh, bottlenose dolphins are found throughout the world in both offshore and coastal waters, including harbors, bays, gulfs, estuaries of temperate and tropical waters. Bottlenose dolphins get their name from their short, thick snout, sometimes called their rostrum. They're generally gray in color, but can range from light gray to almost black, especially near their dorsal fins, while some bottlenoses' uh, bellies are almost white. Common bottlenose dolphins can get real big, reaching weights of up to 1,400 pounds, lengths of uh, 12 and a half feet, and they live a long time as well, around 40 to 50 years. And they reach sexual maturity between five and 14 years old. That's quite the variance. Those five-year-old dolphins who want to get the rocks off must uh, really tease sexually uninterested 13-year-olds who are like, stop, I'm not ready. My mom said everyone develops on their own time, guys. Stop it. Uh, when they're not chewing on sea coke, bottlenose dolphins feed on a variety of prey such as fish, squid, crustaceans like crabs and shrimp. They like those shrimps. They use different techniques to pursue and capture prey much uh, more advanced than most creatures. Sometimes they even work together to herd fish into groups then take turns charging to the school of fish to feed. Uh, they also trap schools of fish against sandbars and seawalls for an easy meal. Fucking sea wolves! Instead of using their teeth to chew, uh, dolphins grip fish with their teeth and swallow the fish whole head first so the spines of the fish don't catch in their throats. Importantly, bottlenose dolphins, all dolphins, mammals, not fish, both dolphins and fish have adapted to live their whole lives in the water, both with streamlined bodies and fins. But, you know, sea mammals, unlike fish, of course, have to return to the surface occasionally to breathe through their blowholes to get some, to get some air. Dolphins have evolved to take in air extremely efficiently as they exchange 80% of the air in their lungs with each breath. Humans, on the other hand, are only capable of exchanging 17% of the air in their lungs. If dolphins could just never have to be in the water or could just stay constantly wet with like a mister or something and they could just grow legs, They'd kill it in long distance running and cycling with that kind of oxygen efficiency. Dolphins, like uh, all marine mammals, have a greater capacity for oxygen storage in their lungs, blood, and muscles than land-dwelling mammals. All this creates a more efficient use of the oxygen in their bodies and is what allows many species to dive for extended periods of time. Like many mammals, dolphins give birth to a single baby once every one to six years and then feed their babies milk through their nipples. That's right, nipples, sea nipples, ocean tatas. And yes, if you must know, I did Google dolphin titties after being reminded that they had nipples. I'm not ashamed. Maybe, probably should be, but I'm not. And that specific search did not really bring up much of anything useful. Uh, it led me to some pretty fucked up memes and to some really weird illustrations, but nothing scientific. So next, I Googled dolphin memories and I found some more useful information. 
Then I searched for and found so much other shit relating to dolphin, dolphins, uh, sexy time bits. Let me, let me share with you what I found. Uh, hail Nimrod. It is almost time to talk about dolphin dick, uh, based on what we're covering coming up. This knowledge will actually be useful today. Also, some of this stuff is going to be very sexually explicit. You've been warned if you want to get out now. Starting with nipples. Dolphins do have nipples, just not external nipples. Female dolphins have mammary slits down alongside their long genital slit where their vaginas and their anus hide. Everything's in the same area down uh, on their lower belly by their tail. They have sneaky little butts and sneaky little pusses under these slits. And uh, yes, I did also Google dolphin pussy. <laughs> while at Starbucks, but only because I felt safe sitting up against the wall where no one could see my screen. Their vaginal canal is spiral shaped. Uh, and I found this, uh, I, I did find so much that's fascinating. Similar to humans, dolphins have a clitoris located at the entrance to the vagina uh, where it is sure to be rubbed during penetrative sex. It's believed they can have orgasms. Uh, one of the few animals on earth that definitely seem to have sex just for fun that we've discovered, that we know of. And they fuck a lot year round. Studies suggest dolphins have more sex than bonobos, and those free-loving pygmy chimps have sex several times a day. Dolphins love to fuck. Hey, Lucifina! Lucifina's favorite sea mammal. And they don't just have straight sex. Sometimes male dolphins fuck other male dolphins. Sometimes female dolphins. All this has been observed. Uh, sometimes female dolphins rub their sex bits against other female dolphins' uh, sex bits. And according to several sources, they nibble on each other's fun bits. Yes, dolphins will get their bottle noses down there and they'll eat some dolphin puss. Or they'll give some kind of dolphin blowjob. Sometimes do dolphins basically line up and fuck another dolphin one after another. They will run a dolphin train on a dolphin. They will fuck dolphins in their dolphin butts. Mm-hmm. Dolphins are not above some poop hole loophole. Poop hole loophole. Uh, some males have even been witnessed sticking their dolphin dicks in other dolphins' blowholes. They'll, they'll fuck a blowhole. Not kidding about any of this. They are horny, horny sea wolves. Ow! Uh, not sure exactly what their oral techniques are, by the way. Weird that there wouldn't be a source going into great detail about exactly how dolphins blow each other. Uh, I, <laughs> I tried to find that, and oh boy. I uh, came across a video on a very disturbing porn site of a guy definitely blowing a dolphin. Holy shit, I tapped out on that. That was, uh, that was too much for me. It uh, turns out my curiosity does have limits. Speaking of porn and dolphins, though, <laughs> speaking of uh, too much curiosity, time for today's first sponsor. Today's episode of Time Suck is brought to you by Captain Whiskerhorn's Pony Play Emporium, Tax Shop, and Saddlery. Been too long since they sponsored an episode. Howdy, partners and pony riders. It's here's your good buddy, Tom Anderson, a.k.a. Captain Whiskerhorn. In an effort to be your most trusted source of any and all kink in the Quad State area. This week, all dolphin play gear and dolphin porn is 75% off. We have dolphin dick-shaped dildos, dolphin masks with mouth holes built for both human and dolphin penises, dolphin sex suits complete with lube, genital, and anal slits. We also have more dolphin sex video titles than anyone else. Over twice as many titles as Don Doberman, owner-proprietor of Dog on Dong's Puppy Play Megastore Butt Dungeon and Kemp. We have new titles. Stuff like Big Dongs and Blowholes, Dolphin Reef and Human Beef, Two Dolphins, One Net, Dolphin Tail 3, The Slit Fits. We also have classic golden era dolphin porn as well, Flipper Fuckers, Catch and So Much Release, Porpoise Puss, and Sea Slut 7, Bottlenose Butt Sluts. So come on down to Captain Whiskerhorn's Pony Play Emporium Tax Shop and Salary. The water's fine and the dolphins are frisky. Hi-oh, sarsaparilla, away! All right. 
Glad to see the Captain Whiskerhorn is back buying some more ads. And obviously, the, that is not a real store. We are lucky enough to have plenty of real sponsors. Uh, since I've already brought the narrative to a screeching halt, let's take an actual sponsor break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything is that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. I still love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but I'd stopped eating them almost entirely a while back. 
because the bread on top of the sugar from the jelly made me so sleepy. All those carbs caused me to want to take a nap after eating them. Enter Hero Bread. Hero Bread takes the fear of carbs out of bread, but still leaves you with that delicious bread taste. Hero Bread has zero to one gram of net carbs, zero grams of sugar, and it's high in fiber. It's also delicious and flavorful. The soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying a savory breakfast burrito or mouth-watering cheeseburger. There is something for every craving, including sliced bread loaves, buns, and tortillas. And there are monthly small batch drops of indulgent favorites, like the two grams of net carbs Hero Croissant or the one gram of net carbs Hero Cheddar Biscuit. I had a loaf of Hero Classic White Bread delivered last week. Soft, fluffy, and delicious. Five grams of protein per slice, and it's high in fiber. And the best part? Hero Bread doesn't taste healthy. It tastes like bread. It's great. Don't give up on being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use code TIMESUCK at checkout. That's TIMESUCK at H-E-R-O dot C-O. Thanks for listening, Meat Sacks. Now let's return to learning so much you probably never wanted to know about dolphins. Well, I did tap out on some disturbing dolphin porn videos. Uh, I did want to learn more about their anatomy. And my curiosity did lead me to also Google dolphin dick. And that also led me to seeing some shit I can never unsee. Uh, proceed with caution on that search. There is a surprising amount of photos of dolphin dicks out on the web. Uh, male dolphins have no mammary slits, but they do have a separate genital and anus slit. They get uh, they got sneaky little butts and they got sneaky, sometimes not so little dicks and balls. According to John C. Lilly's research, the testicles of the male are buried in the body, extending anteriorly from the genital slit on each side and are amazingly large. We have recently dissected an animal in which the testicles were 12 inches long, about two inches in diameter, and uh, cylindrical in shape. The penis of a fully developed male is approximately six inches long with eight inches maximum for length. The base fore and aft is about four to five inches, and the tip is only a couple of millimeters in diameter. Yeah, they get real, uh, real skinny at the end. Another site describes it like this. They have a dick about the size of a human hand. The size of a human hand obviously varies, as does the size of dolphin penis. Apparently, dolphin penis size varies quite a bit, just like with humans. Pretty funny to me. <laughs> Think about how there's some dolphin micropenes swimming out there, as well as some like well-hung John Holmes-type dolphins. I uh, ended up reading way more articles than were necessary about dolphin genitalia and looked at all the anatomy charts I could find, and uh, I just find it pretty fascinating. Penises, balls, vaginas, butts, little dolphin titties all hidden under their slits. But enough, but enough about dolphin genital anatomy for now. It'll come up again later. But, but I won't get into the nitty-gritty nitty uh, details of it quite so deeply again. Now, right now, let's go back and focus on their big brains. Not only intelligence that makes something able to speak a language, also how their socialization structure has evolved. After all, you, need, you only need to speak if there's someone around to hear it, if it's necessary to communicate what you need to do. A species intelligence is likely both a result of and a driver of how complex their social structure is. Dolphins generally live in small groups and organize, you know, fairly complex group behaviors when mating and hunting. That's why they're smarter than most other animals. When they stop to rest, they form tight formations with their groups. They breathe slowly. Uh, they have a ton of social behaviors, breeding, playing, showing aggression, rubbing just some of them. This, this level of social uh, socialization requires more communication skills than, say, like a frog, right? That doesn't have to work with other frogs to hunt flies. Dolphins' advanced communication skills have played a big role in how they've survived and thrived as a species. Within their traveling groups, they use squeaks, whistles, and clicks to communicate with each other. Similar to bats, dolphins use the biological sonar, known as echolocation, to detect various objects around their environment by emitting low or high-pitched sound frequencies. Next dolphin's time, uh, how long it takes for those frequencies to bounce off objects and return to them. 
Dolphin's echolocation is so accurate, it can detect an object's size, the direction it's traveling, its density, as well as its position above or below the dolphin. This technique vital to dolphins when vision underwater is limited because it helps them locate food and, you know, more importantly, avoid danger. Pretty badass. Feels like some kind of superpower. Uh, dolphins also communicate through a series of clicking sounds and whistles, each with their own unique vocal pitch. These differences in vocal pitch are essential to communicating within the pod so dolphins can decipher who's speaking. Beyond echolocation, clicking, and whistling, dolphins communicate with a variety of body language signals, including tail and flipper slapping on water, leaping out of water, bumping into each other. Depending on the hardness and repetition, tail and flipper slaps can serve as a warning to other dolphins of nearby danger or be a sign of playful communication. Dolphins can also use their tail and flipper slaps to indicate specific desires if they're hungry, if they simply want to play. No wonder Lily thought these creatures might be able to learn English. Dolphins are excellent mimics. That's why they're great at places like SeaWorld. They can be trained to wave to a crowd or make a vocalization that resembles hello or some other word. They're also very naturally curious. Many aren't afraid of coming right up to a human, making them uh, seem even more intelligent and communicative than they may be. How close does this combination of clicks, whistles, echolocation, and slaps come to approximating a language as complex as any of the human languages? Not totally sure. Scientists don't know yet the exact meaning of each of a dolphin's clicks, whistles, or body bumps. Exactly what these sounds and, you know, gestures express remains largely undetermined. Thus, the answer of whether dolphins have a complex language or not does remain unanswered. Uh, the experiment at Dolphin Point did prove, though, that if dolphins are going to talk, it's probably not going to be in English. People are uh, still trying to figure out what rules dolphin language follows, if any. Dr. Thad Starner, professor at Georgia Tech an advanced computing, uh, and an advanced computing pioneer, uh, developed chat. Cetacean, or cetacean, there we go. Cetacean hearing and tele uh, telemetry, a special underwater computer that can broadcast dolphins' pre-recorded signature whistles as uh, into the ocean at the push of a button. Currently being used by the world's leading dolphin scientists in an attempt to communicate with dolphins out in the wild. So far, chat has yet to receive meaningful responses back from dolphins in the wild, though. While many researchers hypothesize that many sounds and gestures dolphins make are indicators of some kind of sophisticated dolphin language, as of now, again, you know, us meat sacks can't speak it, so we don't know for sure. Now let's meet John C. Lilly, the man who tried harder than most to bridge human-dolphin communication. Who was John C. Lilly? In short, he was a brilliant maniac. Well, let's, uh, let's give more details on that. John Cunningham Lilly was born on January 6, 1915. He'd die on September 30th, 2001 at the age of 86. Led a long and fascinating life, one that stirred a lot of controversy as well. Lily was born to a wealthy family in St. Paul, Minnesota, right across the Mississippi River from Minneapolis. His father was Richard Coyle Lilly, a.k.a. Dick Coyle. Old Dick Coyle, uh, but no one other than me probably ever called him that. Not, definitely not to his face. Uh, Dick Coyle was the president of the First National Bank of St. Paul. Uh, he's a big wake. John's mother was Rachel Lenore Cunningham, um, whose family owned the Cunningham and Haas Company, a large stockyards company in St. Paul. Two wealthy families marrying power couple. Lily had an older brother, Richard Lilly Jr., another Dick Lilly, and a younger brother, David Maher Lilly, a fourth child, Mary Catherine Lilly, died in infancy. John showed an interest in science at an early age. At just 13 years old, he was an avid chemistry hobbyist, supplementing his makeshift basement laboratory. His laboratory, as they may have called it, uh, was chemicals given to him by a pharmacist friend. Students at his parochial uh, Catholic grade school called him Einstein Jr. By all accounts, he was a huge fucking nerd. Good for him. Nimrod loves nerds. 
At the age of 14, he enrolled at St. Paul Academy, SPA, a college preparatory academy for boys, where his teachers encouraged him to pursue science further and conduct his experiments in the school laboratory after hours, which he did. He would also study philosophy at SPA. Uh, Daddy Lily, old Dick Coyle, wanted John to go to an Eastern Ivy League university and become a banker, but John had different plans. He left Dick disappointed. Had no problem disappointing Dick. He got a scholarship from the California Institute of Technology in Pasadena, California, set out to study biology, also became the president of the ski club, member of the drama club, lived a pretty damn dreamy life for someone going to college during the Great Depression. His parents were able to weather that financial storm just fine. All right, all right, all right. After his first year there at, Cal at Caltech, uh, he learned, uh, excuse me, Caltech learned that John Lilly was from a wealthy family and they canceled the scholarship, forced him to go to his father for help. Daddy Dick did help. Dick Coyle simply set up a trust fund to pay his son's tuition and eventually became a benefactor of the college itself. And John's dad would help his son financially for the rest of his days. And young Lilly would continue to draw on his family wealth to fund his scientific pursuits, some of which extremely strange scientific pursuits throughout his life. In 1934, Lilly read Aldous Huxley's novel, Brave New World. Fictional dystopia portrayed in the book really struck a nerve with John and the story of the government-controlled people via developments in reproductive technology, sleep-leaning, uh, psychological manipulation, classical conditioning. Uh, only one person, the narrator, was brave enough to challenge it. This was enough to inspire Lilly to give up physics, which he'd continued to study along with biology, and now concentrate full-time on neurophysiology, the study of the nervous system. He wanted to know how the mind controlled the body so that no one could control his mind and or body. He was a little neurotic. He would switch career paths again soon. This further illustrates how neurotic he was. He was engaged to one Mary Crouch at the beginning of his junior year at Caltech. Uh, months before their wedding, he came down with a bout of nervous exhaustion, uh, quote-unquote, brought on by the pressures of academia and his upcoming marriage. So what did he do to soothe his nerves? He took a random job with a lumber company in the Northwest. Just left school to go fucking chop down some trees. What the fuck? And I can't handle all this pressure. I need to take a little break and clear my mind. I'm going to take an academic sabbatical and just, uh, you know, just go fossil to pine in the Pacific Northwest for a few months. Uh, during this sabbatical, he was hospitalized after badly injuring himself with an ax. He about cut off his foot. Of course that happened. <laughs> you probably shouldn't just randomly jump into lumberjacking as a way to de-stress before your marriage in med school if you have no experience lumberjacking. Maybe pick working at a fucking library or something. Work at the flower shop, bag groceries. Somewhere you can let your mind wander and not accidentally almost cut your foot off if you space out. His time in the trauma ward inspired him to become a medical doctor. So now he began looking for a good medical school. 1937, old Daddy Dick arranged for a meeting between John and Charles Horace Mayo of the famous Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, Charles Horace Mayo, powerful friend, helped Lily get into Dartmouth Medical School in Hanover, New Hampshire. He graduated from Caltech with a Bachelor of Science degree June 10th, 1938, and then enrolled in Dartmouth the following September. There, Lily became friends with Mayo's son. Uh, Dartmouth, Lily launched into the study of anatomy, performing dissections on 32 cadavers during his time there. He once uh, stretched out an entire intestinal tract across the length of the room <laughs> to determine his actual length, so clearly not bothered by a little gore. That sounds fucking horrific to me. During the summer after his first year at Dartmouth, Lilly returned to Pasadena to participate in an experiment with his former Caltech biochemistry professor, Henry Borsuk. This experiment, pretty crazy. The goal was to study the creation of glycosamine, a major source of muscle power in the human body. And for the subject, they would use John himself. The experiment involved putting Lilly on a completely protein-free diet while administering measured doses of glycine and arginine, uh, two amino acids that Borsuk hypothesized were involved in the creation of glycosamine. 
The experiments pushed Lily to extreme physical and mental limits. She became increasingly weak and delirious as the weeks went on. The results of the experiment confirmed Borsuk's hypothesis, and Lily's name was included among the authors, making it the first published research paper of his career. So he had, he had to get that first published paper the hard way. Had to be a human guinea pig. And this would be one of the first instances of a lifelong pattern of experimenting on his own body to the point of endangering his health, which would certainly happen again at the Dolphin Point Lab. During World War II, Lily worked for the U.S. military, researched the physiology of high-altitude flying, and invented instruments for measuring gas pressure. After the war, Lily decided he wanted to pursue a career in medical research rather than therapeutic practice, as was standard for Dartmouth medical students at the time. He decided to transfer to the medical school at the University of Pennsylvania, which would provide him with better opportunities for conducting research, and he would meet some like-minded people there. At the University of Pennsylvania, Lily met Professor H. Cuthbert Bazette, a protege of British physiologist J.B.S. Haldane. Uh, Bazette introduced Lily to Haldane's view that scientists should never conduct an experiment or procedure on another person that they have not first conducted on themselves. And Lily would wholeheartedly embrace this opinion. He'd already done that, as we know. Bazette took a liking to the young, enthusiastic grad student, set Lily up with his own research laboratory. While working under Bazette, Lily created his first invention, the electrical capacitance uh, dia uh, diaphragm manometer. The electrical capacitance diaphragm manometer, device for measuring blood pressure. Doesn't seem to have pat patented something here that was used widely. Uh, if he did, he didn't make a bunch of money on it because uh, sources talk about, you know, using that family money for decades after this. Uh, while designing the instrument, he received electrical engineering advice from biophysics pioneer Britton Chance. Chance introduced Lily to the world of computers, which was still in its infancy. So dude was at the forefront of a lot of emerging tech surrounded by a lot of interesting minds. It was a big deal in academic circles, especially in counterculture circles uh, later on. I found a picture online of him in his later years with Timothy Leary, Allen Ginsberg, all lounging together, clearly very good friends. Uh, weirdly enough, there was also a Manhattan Project connection with Lilly. Manhattan Project, another former suck subject. While finishing his degree at the University of Pennsylvania, Lilly enrolled in a class entitled How to Build an Atomic Bomb. At one point in my life, I would have definitely taken that class for all the wrong reasons. Uh, Lilly and several other students transcribed their notes from the class into a book with the same title. The director of the Manhattan Project, General Leslie Groves, attempted to suppress publication of this book, but was unable to do so because no classified data was used in writing the book. Finally, Lilly graduated with a medical degree from the University of Pennsylvania in 1942, began his career as a conventional scientist doing research for universities and the government. In 1951, he published a paper showing how he could display uh, patterns of brain electrical activity on a cathode ray display screen using electrodes he devised specifically for insertion into a living brain. Uh, he'd expand the scope of his investigations from here and soon started researching topics you could call unconventional. Some evil scientist shit. In 1952, the uh, <laughs> neurophysiologist John C. Lilly accepted a position as the head of the section of cortical integration at the National Institute of Mental Health in Bethesda, Maryland. At the NIMH in 1954, with the aim of isolating the brain from external stimulation, he devised the first isolation tank, a dark soundproof tank of warm salt water in which subjects could float for long periods in sensory isolation or sensory deprivation. Like, you know, he invented sensory deprivation tanks, which makes me think of Stranger Things. Dr. Lilly actually reminds me of the evil scientist in Stranger Things, Matthew Modine's villainous Dr. Martin Brenner. Uh, Lilly and a research colleague, uh, the first subjects of this research, he discovered that the prevailing hypothesis that a lack of stimulation would cause a person to fall asleep was wrong. Instead, he thought he discovered a psychedelic state that he described as a doorway into the universe that allowed one to escape its body 
one soul can leave and one can clean one's karma from one's soul and become a pure spirit. This is a quote from him. He, he is clearly part of the inspiration for Dr. Martin Brenner of Stranger Things. Uh, so begins his interest in psychedelics that will soon merge with an interest in dolphins and aliens and what the fuck. Uh, other work of his at the NIMH included mapping the neural regions that triggered pain, fear, and arousal in macaque monkeys in their brains. We talked about this strange, pretty fucked up and darkly fascinating experiment in the MK Ultrasuck. Lily came up with a method of, this is pretty horrible, but you know, sometimes scientists uh, can be pretty rough, or science, excuse me. He came up with a method of pounding up to 600 tiny sections of hypodermic tubing into the skulls of monkeys, through which he could insert electrodes into different parts of the monkey's brains and electrically stimulate each part of the brain to determine what part of the brain was responsible for pleasure, anger, anxiety, pain, fear, etc. It was a very monumental and you know important important study. Poor little monkeys, though. Man, so many tubes sticking out of their little monkey brains. He even figured out exactly what part of the monkey's brain was responsible for an orgasm and then gave the monkey access to the switch that controlled stimulating that particular electrode. Found out that uh, you know the monkey would reward itself with near-continuous orgasms. <laughs> Uh, at least one every three minutes for up to 16 hours a day. <laughs> Holy shit. At least 320 orgasms a day. Hopefully all that coming helped make up for all the tubes pounded into the little monkey's brain. Uh, Lily also found out that when a monkey was given a switch to simulate an electrode within the pleasure center of its brain, it would press the switch three hours, uh, or, uh, wait, per second, three times per second, sorry, sorry, three times per second for 16 hours a day. Allowing them, <laughs> so just continuously, tick, 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 uh, allowing the monkey to flood its own brain with endorphins to the point of addiction and trauma. So not so good. He melted those little monkey minds. His uh, early work with dolphins would be equally brutal. And how exactly did John C. Lilly come into contact with dolphins? Well, Lilly had been interested in connecting with uh, cetaceans uh, since coming face-to-face -face with a beached pilot whale on the coast near his home in Massachusetts in 1949 when he was 34. The young medic couldn't quite believe the size of the animal's brain, began to imagine just how intelligent the creature must have been. At every opportunity in the years that followed, John Lilly and his first wife, Mary, would charter sailboats and cruise the Caribbean looking for other big brain marine mammals to observe, as one does when out with their lady. Sailing around looking for big brain swimming mammals to catch and then try to talk to. It was on just such a trip in the late 1950s that the Lilly's came across Marine Studios in Miami, the first place in the world to have a bottlenose dolphin born in captivity in 1947. They'd opened back in 1938. Dolphins had begun to uh, be added to, you know, or were, they were first added to aquariums beginning in the 1860s, but never really properly studied in the 19th century or even in the very beginning of the 20th century. Uh, before research done at Marine Studios, fishermen on America's East Coast uh, who were in direct competition with dolphins for fish considered the animals to be vermin. They were pests known as herring hogs in seafaring towns. But in the tanks of Marine Studios, the dolphins' playful nature was endearingly on display and their ability to learn tricks quickly made it hard to dislike them. For the first time, Lily had the chance to study the brains of live dolphins, mapping their cerebral cortex using fine probes, right, which he'd first developed uh, in his work on the brains of those monkeys. While attempting to study their brains, however, he accidentally asphyxiated several dolphins, leading to the discovery that dolphins cannot breathe, you know, unconsciously. If you, if you put them under, they just, they just die in the water. So whoops, sorry about trying to put you to sleep for a few hours, uh, you know, and putting you to sleep forever, dolphins. So again, definitely the darker side of scientific exploration and experimentation here. The kind a little harder to talk about in polite society. Uh, Lily took a little dolphin break here and continued exploring the brains of rats, cats, sheep, any other animal he could access and pioneered a technique of guiding a hypodermic needle directly into the cortex that didn't require removing the skull or putting a creature under anesthesia, which allowed him to study the dolphin's brains without killing them. So that's, that's kind of good, I guess. 
No, he fucked with the brains of other animals people don't care as much about because they're not as cute like rats. And he tortured and killed a bunch of them. Uh, so, you know, he would torture and kill less dolphins and upset less people. If animals only knew how much their cuteness played into humanity's overall concern regarding their health and welfare. Uh, John also sought out whalers and sea captains who told him stories about dolphins. Who, you know, dolphins coordinating to tip ships over. Dolphins, uh, you know, who had never seen a harpoon but seemed to avoid it as though they recognized it by description alone. Not sure how true all that is, just anecdotal evidence. To Lily, this was all evidence that dolphins for sure spoke a complex language. He thought it was narcissism, human narcissism that prevented human beings from recognizing dolphins' language earlier. He wrote, we are severely handicapped in our efforts to measure the intelligence of individuals of other species than our own. We use inappropriate yardsticks derived from our own history as primates with hands and legs. On one occasion in 1957, the research would take a different course, which would change his and Mary's lives forever. In 1957, John was operating on a dolphin when the dolphin began to imitate John's assistant at the time, researcher Alice Miller. Maybe John thought this behavior indicated an ambition on the dolphin's part to communicate with humans around them. If so, here was an exciting opportunity for interspecies communication. In his early experiments, John and Alice used an underwater microphone called a hydrophone to catalog the screeches, clicks, other vocalizations of dolphins, which Lily believed expressed more than just sexual desire or an alert for danger. Lily would later write, these observations led to further studies in which we demonstrated unequivocally that each dolphin has two communication emitters, both in the nose, i.e. below the blowhole, one on each side. A right and left phonation apparatus is demonstrated in the dolphin's nasal passages. Thus, a dolphin can carry on a whistle conversation with his right side and a clicking conversation on his left side and do the two quite independently with the two halves of his brain. And that's actually true, which is fucking crazy. Dolphins can carry on two different conversations at the same time. A human equivalent would be having a verbal conversation while simultaneously having a different conversation in sign language. So they might not have a language quite as complex as ours or be able to truly understand, say, English, but holy shit, can they multitask better than humans. Also around 1957, Lily was also developing some ideas about extraterrestrials. Then a few years later, someone would introduce uh, Lily to LSD. <laughs> Ivan Torres, the producer of the first Flipper movie. <laughs> Uh, released in 1963, which would lead to the TV series Flipper, a show that ran from 64 to 67, described uh, as an aquatic lassie, a show about a really smart dolphin that can talk to people and help solve park crimes and all kinds of shit. Uh, fuck yeah. Nice. A lot coming together now. I love that the fucking guy who helped produce Flipper is introducing this scientist who's interested in dolphins to fucking acid. Dolphin studies, LSD, fascination with UFOs. What could go wrong? Uh, while using his sensory deprivation tank and <laughs> taking a fuckload of LSD, Lily started to believe that his life was governed by extraterrestrial beings. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Good thing he's in charge of experiments. Uh, by the late 50s, Lily started to believe uh, in the existence of a hierarchical group of cosmic entities, the lowest of which he dubbed the Earth Coincidence Control Office, ECHO. <laughs> Lily stated that there exists a cosmic coincidence control center with a galactic substation called Galactic Coincidence Control within GCC is the solar system control unit, the SSCU, within which is the Earth Coincidence Control Office, ECCO. <laughs> he wrote that there are nine conditions that should be followed by people who seek to experience coincidence, aka alien contact, in their own lives. Holy shit. Let me share these nine conditions with you so you understand what, what kind of dude we're dealing with now. Uh, definitely need some alien background music for this shit. And again, you have to follow all nine of these conditions if you want to allow aliens to guide your life. First, you must know, assume, simulate our existence 
in Echo. Two, you must be willing to accept our responsibility for control of your coincidences. By our, he means Echo. Uh, he clearly thinks he's basically Earth's chosen prophet of this intergalactic alien federation. This reads like some Heaven's Gate cult shit. This guy, this guy was a cult leader with, without a cult. Three, you must exert your best capabilities for your survival programs in your own development. As an advancing, advanced member of Echo's Earthside Corps of Controlled Coincidence Workers, you are expected to use your best intelligence in this service. Join my cult! 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 You are expected to expect the unexpected every minute, every hour of every day, and of every night. Okay, that was uh, that was LSD talking there on number four. Five, you must be able to maintain conscious, thinking, reasoning, no matter what events we arrange to happen to you. Some of these events will seem cataclysmic, catastrophic, overwhelming. Remember, stay aware, no matter what happens, apparently happens to you. He is clearly super psychologically stable. Semper sensory deprivation tank, not fucking with him at all. He continues. You are in our training program for life. There is no escape from it. We, not you, control the long-term coincidences. You, not we, control the short-term coincidences by your own efforts. Do not think for yourself. Let me, I mean, uh, let Echo rule your life. I, I, I fucking, I don't know what he's saying. Seven. Your major mission on Earth is to discover, create that which we do to control the long-term coincidence patterns. You are being trained on Earth to do this job. Eight. When your mission on planet Earth is completed, you will no longer be required to remain or return there. Nine. <laughs> Remember the motto passed to us from GCC via SSCU. Cosmic love is absolutely ruthless and highly indifferent. It teaches us lessons whether you like, dislike them, or not. Holy shit, this guy's fucking crazy. Lily believed that these aliens were his guides. <laughs> like, he wholeheartedly believed all this. Responsible for orchestrating any and all coincidences in his life and steering him in, you know, certain directions. He was dropping so much fucking acid. Lily would call Echo one of God's field offices. They control our lives, though we won't admit it. In 1958, these cosmic beings convinced Lily to abandon the results-oriented constraints of government-funded research, divorce his wife, and throw himself into researching dolphins. He had to research dolphins. He had to divorce Mary. She stood in the way of dolphin glory. It's what Echo wanted. 1961, after three years of study and over uh, one amphetamine-fueled weekend, yes, he also did a fair amount of meth. So what? It helped him focus. Meth! Liquid Whipple! Uh, John C. Lilly produced a book called Man and Dolphin when he was cranked out of his fucking gourd. This was the first book to claim that dolphins displayed complex emotions. They were capable of controlling anger, for example, and that they, like humans, often trembled in response to being hurt. As well as being our cognitive equal, Lily speculated they were capable of a form of telepathy <laughs> that was key to understanding extraterrestrial communication. That's of course. Dolphins communicate via telepathy, as do aliens. Two things there has never been a whiff of proof of. This holy wackadoodle book starts like this. Preface, a prediction. Within the next decade or two, the human species will establish communication with another species, non-human, alien, possibly extraterrestrial, more probably marine, but definitely highly intelligent, perhaps even intellectual. An optimist prediction, an, an optimistic prediction, I admit. In this book, I have summarized the basic reasons for my beliefs and presented some evidence for the validity of the prediction. In a way, this is a crude elementary handbook for those humans who are interested in the realization of such communication. 
If no one among us pursues the matter before interspecies communication is forced upon Homo sapiens by an alien species, this book will have failed in its purpose. But if this account sparks public and private interest in time for us to make some preparations before we encounter such beings, I shall feel my time was well spent in the research here described. Uh, yeah, that prediction was really optimistic. 60 years after this book was published, uh, we're still waiting to establish communication with another highly intelligent species. Fuck, that's so, uh, that's so crazy. Listen, you guys, coming up quick, aliens are going to land or Atlantis folk are going to walk out of the sea. Basically is what he's saying there. The dolphins will, you know, let us know that they, you know, they have an underground city. They, they talk to the Lemurians. I mean, just weird shit. Uh, and uh, this wild idea of talking dolphins eager to tell us something, you know, or aliens landing. It all captured the public's, the public's imagination. The book became a bestseller. And, and of course, this is an exciting idea. The thought of any animal being eager to figure out how to start talking to us, share all this cool info. Yeah, it's exciting. A, a lot of fantastical, no chance of it ever happening in reality ideas are very exciting. Uh, getting to race uh, unicorns against Sasquatches. That's an exciting, you know, idea. Uh, uh, David Hatcher Childress again. Uh, unicorns, uh, while thought to be quite fast, are not believed to actually race any other cryptids and not known to be competitive. I can't recall a single example of a unicorn and Sasquatch being spotted together at all, uh, let alone racing. David? Oh, and you were, uh, were you kidding about, about the unicorns again? Yeah. Okay. All right, cool. I'll just do uh, I'll just go wait in the hall again. <laughs> go, Chris. Uh, Lily also believed dolphins could teach us to live in outer space without gravity. That's a quote. Okay. He proposed that they could be trained to serve in the Navy as a glorified seeing eye. That at least seems kind of realistic, right? Uh, that application would catch the government's attention. Noted astronomer Frank Drake, one of the many people who read Lily's crazy ass fucking book. And Drake excitedly drew parallels between his own work and Lily's. He's a bit nutty too. Drake headed the National Radio Astronomy Observations Green Bank Telescope in West Virginia. He read Man and Dolphin. In between, during, during, uh, in between doing observational research, Frank had spearheaded Project Ozma, which was the search for extraterrestrial life through radio waves emitted from other planets. So far, Drake's search had, you know, turned nothing up. He needed a way to refine his search. He needed a way to communicate with whatever was out there once he found it. In 1961, Drake invited Dr. Lilly to a meeting at the Green Bank Observatory in West Virginia, along with many of America's premier scientists. Even a young Carl Sagan was invited. Their meeting led to the Drake Equation a formula used to determine the likelihood of a planet being home to alien life. But still there was the question, how would they communicate with these aliens? Which led, obviously, back to Dr. Lily and dolphin studies. <laughs> this is one of the weirdest true stories I've ever come across. These scientists banded around Lily's ideas, even made pins featuring dolphins that they wore on their fucking jackets. <laughs> they were all clearly dropping so much acid. They called their group the Order of the Dolphins. God damn, these, uh, I mean, I love it. These fucking nerds. They send each other little coded messages to decipher half for fun, half testing their abilities to communicate in unfamiliar languages. With Frank Drake's help, these crazy nerds secured funding from NASA's bioscience program. The 60s, what a time to be alive. How much funding did they get? I can't find out. That info doesn't show up in the many, many sources uh, we found that state that the project was funded by NASA. With some amount of NASA money, any amount is <laughs> fascinating and crazy. Lily set up his lab in St. Thomas on the, you know, one of the U.S. Virgin Islands. Uh, the U.S. Virgin Islands, once colonized by the Kingdom of Denmark, Norway, sorry, the Kingdom of Denmark, Norway, uh, who ruled it from 1754 to 1814, then ruled by the Kingdom of Denmark from 1814 to 1917, then bought by the United States 
consists of four larger islands. It's been a U.S. territory ever since. Uh, yeah, four larger islands, St. Croix, St. Thomas, St. John, uh, water islands, as well as around 50 smaller land masses. Today, St. Thomas, one of the U.S.'s top vacation destinations as the 2000 census, and I don't think it's changed much since, uh, according to Wikipedia and other places, has a population of about 51,000 residents. Uh, back in the 60s, it was a pretty sleepy little island whose economy was based mostly in agriculture and fishing. John Lilly hoped uh, that St. Thomas would be the place where he could launch his water, house, dolphin, human hybrid living space, a model that he was sure would then be recreated all around the world. He just had this vision, humans and dolphins coexisting, cohabitating across the globe. What a fun thing to think. He actually thought for a while that humans and dolphins would just, you know, just uh, live in some kind of mythical Atlantis-like land creature sea mammal harmony. I picture in Lily's LSD fever dream fantasy, dolphins putting on astronaut-type suits filled with seawater inside, robotic arms and legs just walking around amongst us. People having dolphins for neighbors. You know, you're fucking mad because, you know, you got outbid on this house from the dolphin family. Parents getting mad at their kids for, you know, dating uh, dolphins, not dating within their species and shit. Uh, people bitching about, you know, some dolphin getting a promotion at work that they were sure was going to them. Well, fucking flipper. <laughs> I guess he's the supervisor now. Uh, Lily built a laboratory housing a workspace on the upper level, a dolphin enclosure on the bottom. Tucked away on the picturesque shore of the Caribbean, he called the Alabaster Building Dolphin Point. Lily was then able to get three dolphins from Marine Studios over in Miami. Carl Sagan would even visit and go scuba diving with uh, Lily's dolphins. His dolphins were named Pamela, Sissy, and Peter. Each dolphin had their own unique personality. Uh, dolphin fucker, I mean science-type assistant person, Margaret Howe, would later write, there were three dolphins, Peter, Pamela, and Sissy. Sissy was the biggest. Pushy, loud, she sort of ran the show. Pamela was very shy and fearful, and Peter was a young guy. He was sexually coming of age and a bit naughty. <laughs> okay. Uh, Peter and Margaret will take the story to just about Max Weird soon. Margaret Howe, Lily's assistant, will get really invested in her experiment with Peter. Let's get to know her better. Uh, now known as Margaret Howe Lovett, her married name, Margaret was born on St. Thomas, 1942, grew up on the island around Christmas in 1963 when Margaret was 20, uh, 21. She, her, her brother-in-law, uh, mentioned a secret laboratory near where she lived at the eastern end of the island where they were working with dolphins. Well, when you live on St. Thomas, everything is nearby. The island's only 13 miles long. Because Mary loved animals, dolphins uh, amongst her favorite animals, she decided to pay the lab a visit early the following year. She drove out there, went down a muddy hill, saw a building on the side of a cliff, not knowing that the events you know, that would go down there would make her a notorious celebrity <laughs> when accounts of her sexual relationship with Peter would later be the basis for a story published in Hustler magazine. When that magazine had a wide circulation uh, that included some real graphic quotes from Dr. Lilly. I'll read you a bit of that story later. Holy shit. Mary had been obsessed with the concept of talking animals uh, ever since she was a kid, ever since she read Miss Kelly, a book about a cat who learns to speak with humans written by American novelist Elizabeth Holding. Growing up, she loved cartoons, you know, about talking animals. You know, sure, I think most kids do. But then as an adult, unlike most kids, she wasn't ready to give up on the dream of talking to animals. She wanted to witness the breakthrough that would make that a reality. She wanted to help. At the lab, after showing up unannounced, Margaret met the experiment's director, a famous anthropologist named Gregory Bateson. When Bateson asked her what she was doing there, she replied, well, I heard you had dolphins, and I want to fuck one of them, Greg. I want that dolphin dick. Need it. It's the only way to get a dolphin to speak English to fuck it six ways from Sunday. Count me in. So be it. More than ready to do what's necessary. These panties can be on the floor in three seconds flat. Get one of those sea studs hard and stick it in my puss, Greg. All right, maybe she didn't say exactly that. But later on, it seems to be uh, what, she's done, what she did. Uh, she said, well, I heard you had dolphins, and I thought I'd come to see if there's anything I could do. 
Bateson, who liked the moxie Margaret displayed just walking into the laboratory unannounced, offering her services, even though she had no educational and or work experience with dolphins at all, decided to let Margaret watch the dolphins and make some observations. Find out how useful she could be. Very quickly, he realized she was good at it. Both he and Lily realized her intuitiveness uh, was uh, exceptional, offered her an open invitation to the lab. Maybe they also realized there wasn't real high demand for semi-competent free dolphin interns in their weird fucking lab. Not a big local labor market to choose from. The cumulative population of all the U.S. Virgin Islands at the time was just around 30,000. Uh, Margaret's vision was, of course, approved by Lily, who took a bit of time away from thinking about aliens while tripping balls uh, to be like, yeah, 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 she'll do. She'll do nicely. Echo approves. Unbeknownst to Margaret, Lily did actually think that Margaret's sudden appearance was proof of Echo in action. He literally thought aliens had sent her to him as part of a plan to get dolphins to speak English so they could dolphins could then teach us how to use telepathy so we could communicate with aliens more effectively who would be here any day now. Holy shit. So much acid. Uh, Margaret took up her internship with enthusiasm. She worked diligently with the dolphins, uh, Pamela, Sissy, Peter, Uh, Through daily lessons, she encouraged them to create human-esque sounds, and she began to fall in love with them, mostly with one of them. She began to truly see them as her friends, and one as more than a friend. She started to feel guilty about leaving them alone in the lab overnight. Margaret convinced Lily to let her live in the lab, waterproofing the upper rooms, flooding them in a couple feet of water. This way, human dolphins could occupy the same space. This way, she could spend 24 hours a day with her dolphin buddy, build some rapport, really get Peter to see her as family, you know, so he'd feel comfortable speaking English to her. She felt like she could build a connection with one of the dolphins. It would be, you know, so much easier to make progress teaching them, which, you know, to be fair to her, does make some sense. And if they suddenly had some kind of breakthrough, she wanted to be there to identify it, expand upon it. Also, she had to have been dropping a fair amount of LSD as well. I mean, sources don't say that, but they do say there for sure was a bunch of LSD around the lab. I'd be shocked if she wasn't taking so much of it herself. To really try and progress uh, in this experiment, Margaret chose to focus on, you know, one dolphin, primarily for the revamped immersive language experiment, Peter. These two would coexist in the lab six days a week for almost an entire summer. Every seventh day, Peter would spend time in the enclosure with Pamela and Sissy, make sure he, you know, remained connected with his dolphin buddies. Once Margaret started spending a lot of one-on-one time with young Peter, she quickly realized that Peter saw her as more than a friend. (laughs) Margaret would later say, when we had nothing to do was when we did the most. He was very, very interested in my anatomy. Fuck yeah, bro. Oh my God. She said, if I was sitting here and my legs were in the water, he would come up and look at the back of my knee for a long time. Uh, He's probably looking at other places too. He wanted to know how that thing worked and I was so charmed by it. Peter was more than charmed by Margaret's anatomy. An adolescent dolphin with certain urges, Peter found Margaret to be, you know, specifically, scientifically speaking, hot as fuck. And then soon thereafter, found her as down to fuck as well. Margaret told interviewers that Peter started to rub himself up against her body and by himself, I mean his dolphin dick. And after a few dry hump sessions, Margaret Howe decided to satisfy the sexual urges of the dolphin manually. Mm-hmm. It's dolphin handjob time. The experiment's getting a whole lot more interesting. Allow me to play some mood music for what Margaret said about how this experience began. It was just easier to incorporate that and let it happen. It would become part of what was going on, like an itch. Just get rid of that scratch and we would be done and move on. It wasn't sexual on my part sensuous, perhaps. It seemed to me that it made the bond closer, not because of the sexual activity, but because of the lack of having to keep breaking. And that's really all it was. I was there to get to know Peter, and that was part of Peter. All right, now that we've met John Lilly, Margaret Howe, and some members of Peter's species, let's really <laughs> examine all this 
in chronological order. Let's splash into the day super wet in more ways than one. Time suck. Timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time suck timeline. Uh, let's begin a little bit before the formal start of the Dolphin Point the lab experiment. Uh, back in 1959, when the government began its interest in using dolphins. In 1959, the U.S. Navy began training dolphins and sea lions as teammates for sailors and marines to help guard against threats underwater. Lily was not the only one trying to pull off some weird Poseidon Aquaman type shit. That year, a Pacific white-sided dolphin was acquired for hydrodynamic studies to improve torpedo performance. The aim was to determine whether dolphins had some sort of sophisticated drag reduction system but the technology of the day failed to demonstrate the dolphins have any unusual capabilities in that respect. 1962, the animal's intelligence, exceptional diving ability, and trainability led to the foundation of a new research program at Point Magoo, California, between Malibu and Oxnard, where a research facility was built on a sand spit between Magoo Lagoon and the ocean, the NMMP, the U.S. Navy Marine Mammal Program. The intention was to study the dolphins' senses and capabilities, such as their natural sonar and deep diving physiology, and to determine how dolphins and sea lions might be used to perform useful tasks, such as searching for and marking objects in the water. A major accomplishment was the discovery that trained dolphins and sea lions could be reliably worked untethered in the open sea. In 1965, a Navy dolphin named Tuffy participated in the Sea Lab 2 project off La Jolla, California, not far south of uh, Point Magoo, uh, carrying tools and messages between the surface and the habitat 200 feet below. So that's pretty badass. They truly are so damn smart. Tuffy was also trained to locate and guide lost divers to safety. In 1967, the NMMP was classified and began to evolve into a major black budget program. You know, black ops located in Point Loma in San Diego, still going on today. Who the fuck knows what they're doing with dolphins right now? Uh, the program stated animal activities included protecting ports and Navy assets from swimmer attacks, uh, locating and assisting in the recovery of expensive exercise and training targets, and locating potentially dangerous sea, uh, sea mines. There are five marine mammal teams, each trained for a specific type of mission. These teams can be, can be deployed at 72 hours notice by ship, aircraft, helicopter, and land vehicle to regional conflicts or staging areas around the world. What the fuck? <laughs> this is crazy. This sounds like the plot of some weird 80s buddy cop movie with animals. Like Turner and Hooch, you know, with Tom Hanks or K-9 with Jim Belushi. But with, you know, fucking sea lions and dolphins and, you know, <laughs> the Navy. Commander, I'm too old for this shit. Come on, don't put me with the rookie. You'll follow orders, McDaniels. He's reckless, Commander, and he's horny. He's always so, so horny. God damn it, McDaniels. Skippy's the best we've got. Uh, this program trained dolphins to await cues from their handlers before starting to search a specific area using its natural echolocation. The dolphin then reports back to its handler, giving particular responses to communicate whether a target object is detected if a mine-like target is detected, the handler sends a dolphin to mark the location of the object by releasing a buoy so it can be avoided by Navy vessels or neutralized by Navy di divers. Uh, interestingly, mine clearance dolphins were deployed to the Persian Gulf during the Iraq War in 2003, and the Navy said these dolphins very effective in helping to detect more than 100 anti-ship mines and underwater booby traps. That is incredible. So that dolphin program, super successful. The dolphin point lab experiment, not so much. Let's back up to 1964. In early 1964, professional dolphin fucker, Margaret Howe, arrives at the Dolphin Point Lab for the first time, meets Gregory Bateson, like I mentioned earlier. Come on, Greg. Uh, some of this will be repetitive, but it's worth it to build this crazy-ass narrative. 
Uh, unused, uh, unused to, uh, an unannounced visitors impressed by her bravado, right? Based on advice her to meet the animals, meet Dr. Lily, ask her to watch them for a while, write down what she sees. Despite her lack of scientific training, Margaret turns out to be an intuitive observer of animal behavior and Bateson tells her she can come back whenever she wants. Lily approves. At the facility, the lab's upper floors, you know, overhung a sea pool that housed the animals. It was cleaned by the tides through openings at each end. In the pool, she would observe Sissy, Pamela, and Peter. Every day, Margaret would feel regret when people began to pack up and leave. She liked spending time with the dolphins. Thought there was more she could learn if she didn't have to go home at the end of the day. <laughs> She's a different cat. If she could live with the dolphins full-time, she thought she might have a chance at teaching them English. <laughs> Again, she has no education or <laughs> training with dolphins at all. It's just something she thinks. She approaches Dr. Lily about filling the house with plaster or flooding. He agrees. Of course he does. He's fucking crazy. Uh, the aliens <laughs> gave Margaret's request. Echo gives Margaret's request a green light. Uh, you know, because Lily talked to them in his sensory deprivation chamber, all tripping balls. Uh, the intense nature of the project immediately appeals to him. Margaret begins completely waterproofing the upper floors of the lab so she can actually flood the indoor rooms, you know, outdoor balcony with a couple feet of water, which would allow her to live comfortably in the building with, uh, uh, with you know, you know, the fucking the dolphins for, for three months. In preparation, Lily asked Margaret to read Planet of the Apes, report her thoughts. <laughs> Some real scientific homework here. After reading it, Margaret writes in her report, why, why, why must there be a dominance and a subordination? Why must man take over? Why must the apes take over? Dr. Lily, of course, shared her sentiments, as did his alien overlords. They all thought that humans' tendencies towards dominating their environment was cruel, and if they could prove other life was intelligent, it would be redemptive for the human race. Oh, man. By the spring of 1965, the remodeling project is, is ready. Margaret and John ready for a trial run. The trial period would last a week with Margaret living in seawater near constantly. They soon found the conditions in the house were far from ideal for both human and dolphins. Margaret slept uh, usually in her daytime clothes, wet, in a bed that was wet, <laughs> with a dry quilt that would get wet, with a dry pillow that would get wet. Uh, there was fucking dolphin shit floating around the water. <laughs> this is ridiculous. It's lucky she didn't get really sick. Initially, uh, she worked with Pam, who had impressive mimicry, but she was despondent, apprehensive around humans, possibly traumatized by what they were fucking doing with her. So they made some changes, cordoned off a dry area for Margaret, deeper water for the dolphin, more food choices, a vacuum to deal with the dolphin shit that would float around. They changed dolphins. Instead of Pam, Margaret would uh, now work with Peter. At six years old, Peter rambunctious. He had trouble focusing, but enthusiastic and seemed like a promising candidate. Uh, she would later write, I chose to work with Peter because he had not had any human-like sound training and the other two had, or maybe because you had a thing for him. Margaret would attempt to live in isolation with him six days a week now, sleeping on a makeshift bed on an elevated platform in the middle of the room, doing her paperwork on a desk, suspended from the ceiling, hanging over the water. <laughs> ah, this is all so fucking weird. On the seventh day, Peter would return to the sea pool downstairs, spend time with Pamela and Sissy, right? Two female dolphins. First week of June, 1965, the real experiment begins. Uh, quickly, Margaret, Margaret begins to have second thoughts, she'd say. Lying in bed, surrounded by water that first night, listening to the pumps gurgling away. She started to question what she was doing. She later wrote, human people were out there having dinner or whatever. And here I am. There's moonlight reflect on the water, this fin, this bright eye looking at you. And I thought, wow, why am I here? <laughs> but then you get back into it and it never occurred to me not to do it. What I was doing there was trying to figure out what Peter was doing there, what we could do together. Uh huh. That was the whole point. Nobody had done that. As Margaret settled into the first week of the experiment, she found Peter was eager to communicate. Peter responded enthusiastically in his first lessons. Margaret thought they were on their way to significant progress and teaching him English. She used numbers, objects, names, and greetings to build a vocabulary. Their schedule went like this from the actual notes she took on the experiment. Or not, I mean, the actual notes that Dr. Lilly took on the experiment. Uh, 7.30, Miss Howe gets up, washes, eats. 
8 to 8.30. Recorded lesson with Peter, 5 pounds of fish. 9 o'clock. Miss Howe, daily cleaning, vacuum, etc. 9.30. Miss Howe does feeding, notes, protocol. Check workman. Excuse me. 10 to 10.30. Miss Howe and Peter play. Involve some lessons. 11 o'clock. Miss Howe and Peter outside together but relaxed. 11.30. Miss Howe gets lunch. 12 to 12.30. Recorded lesson with Peter, 5 pounds of fish. 1 to 2.30. Miss Howe sleeps. Fun. Write. Read. Relax. Okay. 3 to 3.30. Recorded lesson with Peter, 5 pounds of fish. 4 to 4.30. Time spent working with Peter. 5 to 5.30. Miss Howe works on notes, bills, tomorrow's schedule. I like that she's sneaking bills in there. I got to get some fucking bills done. Uh, 6 o'clock. Miss Howe has dinner. 6.30. Games with Peter. Visitors. Reading. Always with awareness of living with Peter. End of day. Work is over. The two are still together. 10 o'clock. Bed. 10.15. Peter wakes up. Asks for a hand job. If that doesn't get him to go to sleep, Miss Howe fucks Peter for a bit. For science, of course. All in the name of science! <laughs> All right. Maybe that last entry wasn't hers. In their, or his, uh, about her. In their lessons, Margaret avoided using colors as it wasn't known if dolphins saw colors the same way humans did. Uh, only She only acknowledged Peter's humanoid responses, writing, I do not respond to his attention-getting whistles and clicks. Picture him catcalling. <whistles> Come here. Uh, they mean nothing to me, and I make that clear. In one recording, she says, Come right out with the English, Peter. <laughs> Don't even think in your own language. English all the time, Peter. <sighs> My first goal, she wrote, will be to get him to pronounce any word clearly and know the meaning. This will probably be a time coming, or this will probably be a time coming and is the hardest step. This is so ridiculous. She has no fucking idea what she's doing. <laughs> no idea. No training with animals, no formal education that pertains to literally any of this. This poor dolphin, he doesn't want to learn English. Probably just wants her to play with his dick, right? His dolphin squeaks would probably work like a champ on some hot dolphin, babe. She'd love it. He has no idea whether his human doesn't understand his flipper pickup lines. Uh, Dr. Lily did not interfere with the experiment or, or Margaret and Peter's relationship. Instead, he mostly sequestered himself <laughs> in his sensory deprivation tank that he'd installed on the premises, as one does. He spent uh, there a lot of time floating in the darkness, trying to communicate telepathically with aliens. <laughs> think, think about having this fucking maniac as your boss. This isn't a dolphin house. This is an insane asylum. Think about this, like your boss coming to you like, so has, uh, has Peter the dolphin spoken English yet, Margaret? No? That's very frustrating and disappointing. When I was in the sensory deprivation tank this morning, telepathically communicating with Echo after dropping a large amount of acid, they assured me that you would get Peter to talk, Margaret. So do it. Give yourself to their divine will. Remember the nine points. Uh, by the end of the first month, Peter seemed to be making progress. He was vocalized out of the water more often than not. Margaret would write, he responds with a, a good 95% humanoid. Only occasional Delphinese comments on the side. Fucking Delphinese, okay. Despite the progress, uh, what he was saying was far from intelligible. He wasn't learning English. He was just trying to parrot certain human-like sounds back to her. Margaret wrote, he has been practicing <laughs> with the pronunciation of the letter M from Margaret, no doubt, and is discovering that rolling slightly so that his blowhole is just under the water gives a satisfactory M effect. Pam has done exactly the same thing. Margaret was happy about this, but also concerned. The more time they spent together, Peter was starting to have more trouble focusing. She would write, he was hyper, he wanted to play, and then he would tangle himself in Margaret's legs and give her little nips and bruises. About this, Margaret wrote, I look forward to the days when Peter will yell at me rather than nip at me to show his displeasure. It wasn't displeasure. Peter was going through puberty. I find that his desires are hindering our relationship. I can play with him for just so long now. And then he gets an <laughs> And then he gets an erection and the lesson is broken, Margaret wrote. What was the solution? Margaret's first idea was to give Peter several day-long periods throughout the week in the tank with Pam and Sissy. 
let him release some steam with other dolphins. That would be the best idea. But she had a different idea. <laughs> Allow me, again, to play some of that mood music for this. Margaret wrote in her journal, Another thought I had on the subject is whether or not it would be best for the human to somehow find a way to satisfy the dolphin's sexual needs without another dolphin. This may strengthen the bond between the dolphin and the human. Uh, yep. Uh, this is not the only instance of science uh, experiments uh, involving, you know, human-animal sexual relationships, by the way. Let's go, on a little, let's go on a little quick little detour. Surprisingly, there's actually multiple instances of human scientists trying to uh, stimulate animals for science. There are two major published examples that we found here. The first, uh, 1970, anthropologist Francis Burton, professor of anthropology at the University of Toronto, published Sexual Climax in Female Macaca Mulata. That's a scientific name for the uh, rhesus macaque monkey. Burton wanted to answer the question of whether female monkeys can experience orgasm or not. <laughs> ah, so uh, he placed uh, the primates in dog harnesses and cat collars to restrict their movement. Then the researcher put a penis simulator into the animal's vagina with Vaseline as lubricant and moved it at a pace of two to five thrusts a second. She legit dildo-fucked monkeys for science to find out how hard they may come. Uh, Burton was uh, not able to def definitively conclude that female monkeys could orgasm, but she did identify an excitement, plateau, and resolution phase, so sounds like the game. Uh, the second case is that of uh, psychologist Frank Beach and his research on beagles in the 80s. Yes, beagles. Most of the work he did was behavioral, looking at the effects of prenatal androgens on sexual different, different, oh my God, different, oh Jesus Christ, differentiation, different, differentiate, differentiation. It's not a word you say every day, at least I don't. Uh, but some of, the, some of his treated animals were unable to copulate and he wanted to know if they showed normal genital reflexes, even though they weren't fucking one another. So he masturbated the dogs and then would observe <laughs> their responses. Holy shit. Frank Beach jerked off beagles professionally. He was a professional beagle jerker offer for science. He'd write his notes. Uh, there are more recent, although less formal examples in a critically acclaimed, or in 2013, critically acclaimed journalist Daniel Bergner published a book called What Do Women Want? Adventures in the Science of Female Desire. And in the book, he details a demonstration made by a grad student of sexual behavior researcher Jim Foss. The student picked up a female rat and with a tiny brush <laughs> stroked the clitoris. Which protruded, which protruded from the genitalia, Jesus Christ, excuse me, which protruded from the genitalia like a little eraser head. She stroked a few times, then put the animal back down in her cage. Swiftly, the creature poked her nose out the open door. She clamped her teeth on the white sleeve of the student's lab coat and tugged the woman's hand inside the cage. The student brushed the rat's clitoris again, set her down again. And again, the rodent bit into the sleeve, pulling, communicating unmistakably what she craved. This went on and on and on. Fuck yeah. <laughs> the rat was like, hey, 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 do that again. Ah, God damn, that feels great. I would do it myself with these, these tiny little claws. They just don't work as good as that brush. Hands-on techniques similar to this are employed every day in animal husbandry and related fields, right? It's how semen uh, samples are collected. Elephant semen, you know, collected with the help of a hand shoved up their large rears to stimulate their prostate. Uh, should you wish to see it, there are YouTube videos available of a trainer at SeaWorld masturbating to killer whale's enormous pink dick, uh, a man getting a handsy with an uh, echidna's four-headed penis, a dog being jerked off by a prim-looking middle-aged woman, and, you know, on and on and on. So many different other animals. And all in the name of science, collecting samples, helping with breeding, uh, you know, and maybe some people just like to, 
don't know, jerk off animals. Uh, there's also at least one more published detailed account of a dolphin and human having an ongoing sexual relationship. During the summer of 1970, not long after the dolphin point experiments, a young man named Malcolm Brenner fell in love with a dolphin. He claimed that he had a consensual sexual relationship with a dolphin named Dolly at Florida Land, now defunct theme park. Of course, Florida. This is some serious Florida man shit. He first encountered Dolly when he was hired as a photographer for a children's book <laughs> about dolphins, was given free access to the park. Brenner claims that Dolly actively pursued him and that he gave in. He told reporters that this is a woman. Would I come up with these rationalizations and excuses? Brenner's access to the park and unsupervised visits to Dolly's habitat gave him free reign to have repeated penetrative sex with the female dolphin. Uh, this dude, now 70 years old, still feels no shame over this. Seems to love to talk about it. <laughs> he told a journalist, it felt like I was making love to the ocean itself. Brenner graphically detailed the encounter, including the mechanics of maneuvering human genitals uh, with the dolphins in open water in an autobiography he wrote called Wet Goddess. Also the subject of a short documentary called Dolphin Lover. Uh, he wrote in his book, when it comes to making love, <laughs> uh, physical configurations prove a little tricky due to my pseudo cervix being too tight for penile penetration. So he's writing from the dolphin's point of view. So we float around with just the tip inside, clutching and thrusting towards orgasm until simultaneously coming, sharing the astonishing sensation of hot semen, displacing cool seawater in your cunt. Oh boy. Uh, Jesus Christ. Back to Margaret House, NASA funded dolphin love now. While dolphin fucker, Malcolm Brenner said in a recent interview, he'd fuck another dolphin if he had the chance he could muster up the energy. I'm not kidding. Margaret, still alive at 79, recently tried to say, you know, that it wasn't about sexual attraction with her. I'm not sure I buy that. You know, she said of their se sexual summer together, it was very precious. It was very gentle. It was sexual on his part. It was not sexual on mine. And I mentioned that she said this earlier, sens sensual, perhaps. Uh-huh. Uh, their sexual relationship really began when Peter started to rub himself against her. The, the way Margaret put it, you know, writing in her diary, I found that by taking his penis in my hand and letting him jam himself against me, he would reach some sort of orgasm, mouth open, eyes closed, body shaking. Then his penis would relax and withdraw. He would repeat this maybe two or three times, and then his erection would stop, and he seemed satisfied. Like so many boys... Theme that jerking off Peter made him, you know, less of a nuisance. She continued. Now it has happened that Peter has modified his sexual rambunctiousness to a more humanized level and no longer has to come to a dead stop when he gets excited. Peter's sexual excitement usually begins with the biting business and my stroking him. Now, however, now, however, when his penis becomes erect, he no longer tries to run me down and knock me off my feet. Rather, he slides very smoothly along my legs and I can very easily rub his penis with either my hand or my foot. Peter accepts either, and again seems to reach some sort of orgasm and relaxes. We usually go through this three times or so before he quits and starts another game. Science, just doing a little bit of science. No big deal here, nothing to see. As Margaret neared the end of the experiment uh, at the close of the summer of 1965, despite all the hand jobs, foot jobs, she was no closer to conversing with Peter than when she'd started. More than two months inside the house, the physical hardships were starting to wear her down. Several times during the period, she'd write, I'd felt the, or I felt the physically depressing effects of the situation to the point where I found myself actually crying. Small inconveniences suddenly loomed as very large and ugly, and I would find myself in a fit of self-pity depression. It was Peter who brought me out of it every single time, without exception. Oh boy. 
Also, towards the end of their summer together, uh, her sexual interactions with Peter uh, had become increasingly normal, at least to her. She said, uh, I started out afraid of Peter's mouth and afraid of Peter's sex. It has taken Peter about two months to teach me and two months for me to learn that I am free to involve myself completely with both. Any inhibitions she may have had at the start of their summer together were gone. Some people around uh, were now would, would watch, you know, when she and she got Peter off, there would be an audience. Other times they were alone. This is not a private thing, she'd write. Peter and I have done this with other people present. But it is a very precious sort of thing. Peter is completely involved. And I involve myself to the extent of putting as much love into the tone, touch, and mood as possible. We do not have to respect his privacy, but we cannot help but respect his happiness. Yeah, of course he's happy. He's fucking beating him off all day long. And maybe doing more than that, which we'll talk about. Uh, their intimacy would ultimately define the entire experiment once it became public knowledge. When the 10 weeks, with, specifically with Peter, were over in this specific setting, Margaret and Dr. Lily had originally uh, had planned the, to resume the experiment for a longer time, but then Lily found himself struggling to figure out how to make that a reality. He'd been relying on a few financial backers, primarily NASA, but without results proving that the experiment was a success, his funding was suddenly cut off. Suddenly cut off. Meanwhile, word got out more and more about what they were doing in St. Thomas. More and more members of even the experimental academic and scientific community were starting to criticize him. If one, two, three said with very poor intelligibility by a dolphin is indicative of the giant brain animal's ability to speak and therefore to learn language, what is to be said of a parrot clear cut if bird brain Polly wants a cracker? Furthermore, if the parrot is then given a cracker, have we established communication with an alien species, one critic wrote? In the face of uh, criticism, Dr. Lilly turned to the substance he loved, LSD. This time, wasn't just Lilly taking it. He began to give it to two of the dolphins, Pam and Sissy, in an attempt to make them more communicative. He'd write, as the LSD effect came on 40 minutes after the injection of 100 uh, micrograms, the dolphin came over to me. She had not approached me before. She stayed still in the tank with one eye out of the water, looking at me in the eye for 10 minutes without moving. As she's fucking tripping balls. This was a completely new behavior. I moved around to see if there would be any effect from my movements. She followed me right around the edge of the tank. I moved out of the room. The assistant moved into position. The same behavior continued. It is a very amazing change in behavior. She will now come within five feet of me instead of staying 20 feet away. Uh, but not closer to speaking English. And then despite Margaret's protests, Lily started giving 200 micrograms to Peter and would record his reactions for several hours. Several hours. Uh, whatever effect the LSD had on Peter seemed to be entirely internal. Margaret felt powerless to stop Lily from giving the dolphins LSD. By the end of the summer, largely over-injecting dolphins with LSD, most of the staff resigned in protest. Now Lily didn't have funding or staff support. For a few more weeks, Margaret and Lily uh, would keep trying to figure out how to make the Dolphin Point Lab sustain itself, while Lily privately became more obsessed with LSD, sensory deprivation, and aliens. Uh, by autumn 1966, Lily's interest in the speaking dolphin experiment was dwindling. The lab's director, Gregory Baton, now also quit. Uh, the lab announces that they're closing. What would happen to the dolphins? Margaret's new job soon became the decommissioning of the lab, and she prepared to ship the dolphins away to Lily's other lab in a disused bank building in Miami. It was a far cry from the relative freedom and comfortable surroundings of Dolphin uh, Point, of that house there. It's a Miami lab held captive in smaller tanks with little to no sunlight. Peter quickly deteriorated, and after just a few weeks, Margaret got some terrible news. John called her to tell her that Peter had committed suicide. For real. This is so fucking sad and disturbing. Dolphins are not automatic air breathers like we are, which means that every breath is a conscious effort. If life becomes too unbearable, the dolphins just take a breath, sink to the bottom of the water they're in, and will not come up for another breath. They will just check out. And in this way, Peter died. What the fuck? I did not know dolphins could do that. That's so sad. Uh, that dolphin, Dolly, that Mar Mar uh, Malcolm Brenner had sex with also did this a few weeks after their little love affair ended. Do not fuck dolphins. 
for numerous reasons. Also, Kathy, one of the Dolphins that played Flipper on the old TV series, apparently suffered the same fate shortly after filming wrapped up. Richard Roberry, the man who had captured and trained the Dolphins for Flipper, fell into a lifetime of guilt and later would be arrested for trying to free other Dolphins from enclosures. They're very sensitive creatures. No more fucking around with Dolphins. After the experiment was over, Margaret Howe stayed on the island, married the photographer who'd captured pictures of the experiment, a man named John Lovett, a dude who had watched her fuck Peter, <laughs> clearly wasn't bothered by that, maybe turned on, maybe they had a dolphin threesome. Is that some secret they're hiding? I would not doubt it. Uh, together, they moved back into Dolphin House, eventually converted it into a family home and brought up three daughters there. Huh, okay. In the end, Margaret would look back fondly on the experiment saying, over the years, I received letters from people who are working with dolphins themselves, they often say things like, when I was seven, I read about you living with a dolphin, and that's what started it all for me. Hopefully, she's not inspiring them to fuck dolphins. Meanwhile, John C. Lilly would, you know, keep being insane. In 1968, Lilly published Programming and Metaprogramming in the Human Biocomputer. Then in 1972, he published The Center of the Cyclone. Both books were about how he'd taken LSD, swam with dolphins, and locked himself in a deprivation tank. Sensory deprivation. <laughs> he described the first time he used LSD in an isolation tank. I traveled through my brain watching the neurons and their activities, he wrote. <laughs> About these experiences, Lily would write, in the province of the mind, what one believes to be true either is true or becomes true with certain limits. These limits are to be found experimentally and experientially. When so found, these limits turn out to be further beliefs to be transcended. In the province of the mind, there are no limits. However, in the province of the body, there are definite limits not to be transcended. I think that was his way of saying, like, when you hallucinate, it's a kind of reality, I think. Uh, in 1978, John Lilly publishes his autobiography, in which he describes something called solid-state intelligence. According to Lilly, the network of electronics engineered by humans will eventually develop into an autonomous bioform. Since the optimal survival conditions for this bioform, low-temperature vacuum, drastically different from those humans need, room temperature, aerial atmosphere, adequate water supply, Lilly predicted or prophesied, based on his ketamine-induced visions now, yes, now he's doing a bunch of ketamine, that there would be an all-out war between these two forms of intelligence, human, technological, so basically the Terminator franchise, Skynet. So maybe he's not so crazy. <laughs> he's kind of crazy. Uh, he also sounds like a dude who would be so fucking fun to party with for a few weeks. Uh, also in 1978, more than a decade after the experiment, Margaret and Peter's relationship would resurface, no pun intended, in Hustler's November 1978 issue. Written by Jack Owen uh, Jardine, titled Interspecies Sex, Humans and Dolphins, the article was a soft core porn story, somewhat fictionalizing Margaret and Peter's relationship and making it super salacious and people fucking loved it. It was a very popular, uh, you know, uh, issue of Hustler. And, and, you know, a lot of people wondered how fictionalized was it? There are a ton of quotes from Dr. Lilly in this article. And before dying in 2001 at the age of 86, he never said that what was printed was not what he said. He was, he was never like, no, I didn't say that ever. Uh, what did he say? Uh, last description here of Margaret and Peter's summer of love. Maybe it was a lot more than hand jobs. Asked about how sexual Margaret was with Peter, Dr. Lily allegedly said, sometimes she will be on her back on the bottom. Sometimes he will be underneath her. The positions are manifold. They meet belly to belly with heads out of the water. While standing on their tails, he wraps himself around her, holding his flukes in his own mouth. He can maintain an erection for around 20 minutes. Also written is, in mating, the two animals approach each other, their bodies a few feet apart in the water. Suddenly, one aims his crimson spike at the other, drives it home with a graceful pelvic thrust, joined the genitals. The two curl around each other. Oh, boy. 
Uh, when Margaret heard the story, uh, you know, she heard that it came out. She immediately <laughs> went all around the island, tried to buy up every issue of Hustler. Uh, so no one around her could read it. But she wasn't fast enough. And, you know, the story got out and there was nothing she could do about it. Meanwhile, in John C. Lilly's world, uh, Lilly lived in Los Angeles and Malibu until 1992, at which point he moved to the Hawaiian island of Maui, where he continued research with dolphins and whales in the wild. Allegedly, didn't let anyone fuck any of them. Uh, from there, he continued traveling uh, and also lectured in Europe, the U.S., and Japan. And then John Lilly died of heart failure at the age of 86 in L.A. on September 30th, 2001. Proof that you can do a lot of drugs and do a lot of weird shit with dolphins and sensory deprivation tanks and still live a pretty long life. And then his remains were cremated and that will take us out of the timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. The Dolphin Point Lab. What a strange piece of U.S. history. LSD, sensory deprivation tanks, dolphin fucking. <laughs> For roughly 10 weeks from June to August 1965, the Dolphin Point Lab would, uh, you know, become the site of one of the strangest experiments in scientific history. Uh, when John C. Lilly, a man who believed extraterrestrials, communicated with him while he was in a sensory deprivation tank, he got his young assistant, Margaret Howe, to live in confinement with Peter, a six-year-old bottlenose dolphin. The object of the experiment was to teach Peter to speak English, a reality that John C. Lilly thought would come to pass within a decade or so after uh, a pretty legit scientific career. Uh, though some experiments with monkeys and other animals were definitely cruel, Lily made a hard pivot inspired by supposed extraterrestrial subconscious communication influenced by LSD, started studying dolphins in the hopes of figuring out how to better talk to aliens. After accidentally asphyxiating a couple of them, Lily, with the help of NASA, you know, set up his lab at Dolphin Point. He thought that if he could bridge the communication gap, he would, uh, you know, become the man responsible for issuing in a new era of interspecies harmony and possibly intergalactic communication to accomplish all this insanity, Dolphin Point was flooded with water, redesigned to allow the young Howe and Peter to live, sleep, eat, wash, play together. And then they would do more than play. After week five, Margaret noticed Peter getting aggressive, obnoxious. It would soon become apparent that going through puberty, needed some sexual release in order to stay focused. First, Margaret thought about hooking Peter up with some lady dolphins. That was the right call. Then she decided to take things into her own hands. That was the wrong call. Uh, and then maybe, you know, took some things or at least one thing in other places. Uh, then when the 10 weeks were up and Peter was no closer to speaking English, John C. Lilly decided the answer was in LSD. So he started shooting up Peter, the other dolphins with large amounts of acid. The echo aliens told him this was totally cool. No one else agreed. <laughs> the LSD didn't help Peter speak English and with no funding, his staff resigned in protest. The larger world became more and more critical of the whole premise of St. Thomas lab. When word got out, John was forced to abandon his weird fucking experiment, relocate the dolphins to Miami where Peter tragically committed suicide. Uh, John Lilly would then keep having a career somehow. While Margaret would stay behind in St. Thomas, get married to the dude who used to take pictures of her having sex with Peter, and then live a pretty normal life. After all that, uh, will communicating with dolphins in a human language at an advanced human level ever be possible? Uh, what about other animals? Maybe. Maybe. They probably won't be able to speak English like we do, as many creatures lack either the vocal instrumentation, brain pathways, or cognitive development to be able to use verbal reasoning like we meat sacks do. But technology is always improving, always advancing. A lot of advancements in AI, other tech, you know, allows us to hold out hope for all kinds of things. It's even possible now. Hopefully that tech someday allows dolphins to get some fucking counseling when they need it. Holy shit. Let's not focus on that part of today's episode. Maybe we should focus mostly on that dog on TikTok that can tell its owner to shut up and take her for a walk. Yeah, I like that. Let's head now to today's top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. 
Number one, John C. Lilly and Margaret Howe conducted a 10-week-long experiment in the summer of 1965 where they tried to teach dolphins how to speak English. The experiment did not work, though it did generate a lot of media controversy and even a write-up in Hustler magazine. Speaking of that write-up, number two, around the fifth week of the experiment, Margaret Howe decided to let Peter express his sexual frustration with her in the hopes that it would lead to greater focus in his lessons or on his lessons. This involved him rubbing against her, eventually uh, jerking him off, uh, foot jobs, maybe even actual vaginal penetrative sex. Number three, John C. Lilly was a fucking maniac. Though he may have started off as a legitimate doctor, and he, he did, he soon became obsessed with LSD and sensory deprivation, <laughs> which he came up with, uh, which somehow led him to thinking that dolphins could help us meet Zach, communicate with aliens, and that there was such a thing called uh, as a uh, cosmic coincidence control center, a kind of alien bureaucracy that controls all coincidences in everyone's lives. Wow, uh, just wow. I wish I could get my hands on some of the acid he was dropping. Number four, dolphins probably won't ever be able to speak English as we know it, but trying to get animals to communicate with us has been a scientific obsession for, you know, a couple centuries. Chimps have shown a remarkable ability to use sign language, and even dogs have been trained to use speaking panels to communicate their needs and desires. Some studies think that we're not very far out from a way to communicate with some of our other cohabitants on this space rock. Wilder times, they be a-coming. Number five, new info. More infamous bestiality. Because why not? July 2nd, 2005, an unidentified man, or yeah, an, un an unidentified man dropped Kenneth Pinyon off at the Enumclaw Community Hospital in Washington State, about 40 miles south of Seattle, where medical staff wheeled Pinyon into an examination room and then realized that Kenneth was dead. The subsequent autopsy by the medical examiner's office would declare that the 45-year-old Pinyon died of acute uh, perinitis due to perforation of the colon. The death was ruled accidental, but was it? A surveillance camera captured the license plate of the car that dropped Pinyon off, leading detectives to a farm belonging to 54-year-old 54, 54 pervert James Michael Tate. At Tate's trailer, the police confiscated a recording of Pinyon, who was known to his friends as Mr. Hands. And the recording was a video of Mr. Hands being fucked by a horse they referred to as Big Dick. Turned out the farm was actually a hotspot for people who wanted to have sex with big animals. At the trailer, there were dozens of VHS tapes of men engaging in bestiality. Kenneth Pignon was one of the ringleaders, videotaping the sex, distributing it to like-minded people. To get what they craved, the men would literally bend over and wait for horses to anally penetrate them. And to encourage the horses to do so, they would put a type of scent on themselves, the pheromone people used to get horses to breed. Then after some horse sex, they would play super weird games with each other that involving their gaping anuses. I'm going to go ahead and kink shame here. This is fucked up. Don't do this. Get some counseling if you think this sounds okay on any level. You're not thinking right. Pinyon, Mr. Hands, played this stupid game one too many times and literally got fucked to death by a horse. At the time, bestiality was actually legal in Washington, and since there was no evidence of the men abusing the animals, the horses, you know, seemed to be enjoying themselves, no one got in trouble. <laughs> the scandal was so salacious, though, Washington State made, a, made bestiality a Class C felony, punishable by up to five years behind bars and a $10,000 fine. Shortly after Pinyon's death, uh, with the state Senate voting unanimously, to pass this bill. If you want to learn more about the strange story of Kenneth Pignon, there's a 2007 documentary called Zoo about him and the animal fucking culture he was involved in. Uh, be careful out there, everyone. <laughs> you only live once for sure. I know trying new things is great. I'm a super curious person myself, but you can take curiosity too far. Curiosity killed the cat and Big Dick killed Mr. Hans. Don't have sex with animals. Time suck. Top five takeaways. The Dolphin Point Experiment, NASA, Dolphin Sex, LSD, Aliens. It has been sucked. If you have to take a shower after this one, I, I get it. 
Thank you to the Bad Magic Productions team for all the help in making Time Suck every week. Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins, uh, Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley, and Zach Flannery directing this one together. Thanks to Zach Flannery, the script keeper, for tackling the initial research this week. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Actually, that is incorrect. Uh, uh, remembering now, it was, I'm sorry, Sophie Evans. Sophie Evans ran point on this one. Thank you, Sophie. Uh, thanks to Bit Elixir for keeping the Time Suck app running smooth. Logan, the art warlock, Keith, our creative director, creating all the merch at badmagicmerch.com and more. Thanks to Lizzie Enchantress Hernandez, who runs our Cult of Curious Facebook private page, currently Cult of Curious 2, with her wonderful all-seeing eyes, moderators, and she helps Logan with the socials, and thanks to Beefsteak and the Mod Squad, keeping over 10,000 meat sacks happy over on Discord. Next week, we keep things interesting, but also clean up my act a little bit. So much yeah 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 coming up with a suck on the Oregon Trail, another Space Lizard Topic winner. Winner, winner, hardtack dinner. The Oregon Trail was a roughly 2,000-mile route to the West traveled mainly by American immigrant families looking to own land and build wealth in a new place. They faced hardships many of us cannot imagine today. Extreme weather with no modern, you know, winter coats, no Columbia jackets, that kind of shit. River rapids with no guide or cool-ass raft, you know, cooler full of snacks. Starvation since there was exactly zero truck stops or fast food joints along the way. Uh, disease since there were no vaccines for, uh, you know, around yet or modern medicine, uh, accidents, conflicts with other immigrants, uh, natives who didn't want their land taken for some crazy reason, all for the dream of starting a new life out West. The Oregon Trail, a symbol of manifest destiny, the idea that the U.S. was destined by God to expand across the continent and civilize the lands out West. Activity on the trail peaked in the 1840s and 50s, bringing hundreds of thousands of men, women, and children to the Western territories of Oregon, Idaho, Utah, Wyoming, and California. The gold rush brought thousands more, uh, you know, single men primarily looking to get rich beyond their wildest dreams. The trail was the path to the American dream for white settlers, property ownership, the potential for wealth, the exploration of uncharted territory. The Oregon Trail was a fresh beginning full of possibilities for some and an end of freedom for many others. Next week's episode, we'll discuss the history and ideologies of the U.S. expansion from Lewis and Clark to the Homestead Act to the Oregon Trail itself, life on the trail, notable immigrants, Effects of westward expansion on native tribes and the country's growth and development. A lot of cool shit. A lot of cool history. Right now, let's head on over to this week's Time Sucker Updates. Updates. Get your Time Sucker Updates. First update today, some comedy. Tummy trouble having sucker. Adam Sorella got whippled. (laughs) Uh, Adam writes, I was just diagnosed with having a bout of gastritis and I'm chatting with the gastro gastroenterologist and he makes um, the comment that he needs to perform a couple tests to be sure that I don't have Whipple's disease. The look on my face must have confused him and then he was really confused when I started chuckling and he had to explain to me how serious the disease is. I then had to explain time suck to him. If you look at the symptoms, I'm pretty sure all of them are totally, totally plausible for a Whipple drinker. And then Adam included a a link to the Mayo's description of Whipple's disease. Fuck you and fuck your family. Drink Whipple. Uh, The description is as follows. Whipple's disease is a rare bacterial infection that most often affects your joints and digestive system. Whipple disease interferes with normal digestion by impairing the breakdown of foods, hampering your body's ability to absorb nutrients such as fats and carbohydrates, Whipple disease can also infect other organs, including your brain, heart, and eyes. Without proper treatment, Whipple disease can be serious or fatal. However, a course of antibiotics can treat Whipple disease. Holy shit. Whipple can actually kill you. Luckily, a little antibiotics makes it totally safe. Fuck you and fuck your family. Drink Whipple. 
So Adam, I'm glad you're going to be fine. Also glad you taught us something about Whipple. That is so funny to me. Now for more comedy. Sweet sucker Cliff Johnson is new to Time Suck and behind on episodes. He doesn't know yet. There's a term for the tragedy that has befallen him numerous times. He's been Cummins lot. Cliff writes, Hey Dan, I'm new to podcasts in general and love your show. Thank you. Love the organization, research, and deliver your topics. I never thought podcasts would appeal to me. Bunch of old dudes talking for a couple hours. Sounds boring and pompous in my opinion. But my wife, Hale Lucifina, showed me the Fred and Rose West episode and my mind was blown. I just finished the Jim Jones episode. I was driving to the store for dog food, Hale Bojangles, and my stereo Bluetooth is cutting in and out as you're streaming through the Bluetooth going on a whimsical journey of vernacular banter about Jim Butt Play Jones. Mid-sentence, my stereo and Bluetooth connect as I park my car, windows down, put my car in park, exchange a glance with a sweet old lady parked next to me, and as we have a moment of seductive eye contact, you come to the radio loudly talking about Jim Buttplay Jones butt-fucking his followers. My introverted ass maintains shameless eye contact and slowly rolls up my window, and then I go on to laugh hysterically. This isn't the first time you've gotten me. You are the reason I now use headphones. Keep on sucking. Love the show. Don't change, don't change a thing. Uh, love it, Cliff. Good on you for maintaining eye contact there. Impressive. You know, I was going to be awkward anyway, so why not just double down and just really see it through to the end? Uh, so glad you're enjoying the strange journey you're now on. It makes me so happy. Uh, super sucker Seth Clausen now needs our cult's help. Let's get this me sack a job. Seth writes, Dear Suck Nasty, I know this is not your problem, but I need to vent, and you seem like a good listener and a great guy in general. I appreciate that you think that. Uh, this previous year was horrible, not only for me, but plenty of others. This year, not much better. I see hiring signs everywhere. I look, but still no job. I've only had three jobs my whole life, being 33. I don't think that's bad. I've called, walked in to check on apps, and nothing. My background is a DUI in 2018. No drug use, prior military. I don't know what's wrong with me, but it's financially killing me since unemployment has gone out. I'm on the verge of losing my house, and my spouse is talking about leaving since I can't find work anywhere. I'm fucked. I don't know what to do. Truly, uh, I am. Tr I truly am sorry for once about the long email, but I need some advice from this amazing family of ours. Anything uh, will help. Thank you sincerely. One tired of this shit meat sack. Seth, first off, have you posted about this in the Cult of the Curious 2 private Facebook group? If not, you should. It's a very helpful bunch. I would post your resume. I would ask for feedback and suggestions. Also, there are a lot of great free resources out there just on the web. I'm including a link in the show notes of this episode available to download as a PDF, you know, through the TimeSuck app. Uh, or you can just Google how to write a resume guide and look for the NovoResume.com in the results. That's N-O-V-O-R-E-S-U-M-E.com. And then it's career blog, how to write a resume guide. Uh, it's a very nice, free, step-by-step -step tutorial. Great looking resume can help a lot because it'll stand out amongst the many half-assed, lazily written resumes out there. A lot of people just won't put in the time. Make sure there are no misspellings, no typos. Reread that motherfucker like 20 times. Have it just be so on point, looking sharp. Have others read it. Also, when applying, act like you really want the job, but you don't need it. Fake it a bit. Any sense of desperation tends to push people away in a, in a variety of mediums. Confidence, even fake confidence, if you can pull it off, is attractive. People want to work with and hire confident people. They like being around. And again, hit up our Facebook group. Uh, try Discord. There's also a variety of Time Suck Face groups, subgroups out there. Uh, seek help in so, so many places. If a hundred rejections, if a thousand of them lead to one great fucking yes, it's all worth it. Good luck, brother. Uh, wishing you the best. Keep your head up. Hail Nimrod. Now for a crazy happy face killer suck update from kick-ass sack Jake Nickerson. Jake writes, Hey, Master Sucker and all the bad magic. I, I got a late start on Time Suck, but I'm grinding through all of it. Started in March 2021 from the uh, middle of Time Suck with Chad Daniels and Cy Amundsen. 
Uh, yeah, that episode of Middle of Somewhere. It's a great podcast. I'm going to be seeing Chad in San Francisco. It'll be, when this comes out, I'll have already spent time with him. Hoping I had fun there. Guessing I did with him. Anyway, I recently uh, finished the Happy Face Killer Suck, and I've been hoping you would do this ever since you did true crime. My dad was actually the boss of the Happy Face Killer. Every time, that's crazy. Every time I've talked about it with my dad, he said that Keith, Jep Keith Jesperson was a stand-up guy and an extremely hard worker. He never complained about having to go back out on the road sooner than he should have to. I wonder why. My mom, on the other hand, would say a little differently. At one company barbecue, the Happy Face Killer came up to my dad, told him, hey, Bruce, you have a pretty wife. My dad didn't think anything of it, just politely thanked him, moved on. About a half hour later, came back up to my dad, told him, hey, Bruce, you have a real pretty wife. My dad found this odd, thanked him again, moved on. My mom said Jesperson was eyeing her the entire time. Almost like he never took his eyes off her. Now, this was before my sister or myself were ever born, but my older brothers were both running around that barbecue. My dad started driving long haul himself before Jesperson was caught. Both my dad and myself have worked for the same company, have gone into a lot of the same truck stops he did. Truck stops, yeah, he did. Uh, this might be a long-winded but I had to email, but I had to get it out. I was extremely excited when you said you were doing this. I plan to become a spacer once I catch up, but I still have two years of episodes to get through. Can't wait to see you at the Spokane Comedy Club on the 15th. Yeah, that's the coming up this, this week as this comes out. Hail Lucifine and Triple M. Good boy, Bojangles. I'll keep sucking you so hard, Jake Nickerson. Jake, holy shit, man. Lucky you're here maybe, right? Sounds like that evil fucker would have liked to taken your mom out before you were conceived. Nuts that your dad was his boss and had some moments like that with him. Yeah, stay safe out there on the road, man. Hope insane stories like today's uh, help keep you awake and alert out there. See you in Spokane. And now let's end on this. An awesome, uplifting, badass sucker has some encouraging words from one of last week's updates, uh, update submitters. He wrote uh, that I didn't need to read this on air, but then we went back and forth and he did say I could, uh, you know, share it. So, you know, more than just Cody could hear it. Super fucking sucker, Keith Billman writes. Hey, Dan, first of all, I'd like to say I'm a huge fan of your comedy and all 357 of your podcasts. Thank you. Uh, the reason I'm writing you is regarding the Marine Cody S from the Alcatraz episode. Not necessary to read my message on air, but if you could get Cody my message, I would appreciate it. Cody, a little bit about me. I was an infantryman in the Army with the 82nd Airborne Division. I'm a combat wounded vet with deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan, respectively. Hearing your message on the podcast made me want to reach out in some capacity. I just want you to know your feelings are valid and you should absolutely seek help to work through them. To clarify, your feelings are valid as in they are not trivial. I want you to recognize that you are part of such a small percentage of the population that has served our country. With that being said, you are not inferior to those that have been deployed in any way. You are a Marine. You have the training and skills. Had you deployed, you would have done great. You are part of a brotherhood, regardless of deployment status, and you are a badass. Just based on the message you sent in, I can tell you are a good person. I would stand by your side in combat any day. We have never met, but we are brothers. Sorry for rambling, but I hope this message gives you a little clarity at the very least. Take care. Talk to the VA. Work through these things. Your mental health is important. Your fellow veteran sucker, Keith. Man, fuck yeah, Keith. Good on you for taking the time to give Cody a message I am not qualified to give him. Uh, giving me good faith in humanity. The world's full of so much more than serial killers and, you know, dolphin fuckers. Take care of yourself, Cody. You are worth it. And thank you again, Keith. Thanks, everybody. Uh, keep on sucking, everyone. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. Thanks again for listening to this Bad Magic Productions podcast, Meat Sacks. Please, please, please don't fuck any dolphins this week. They don't like it. Well, I mean, you know, at the time, maybe they do kind of like it. But they get so sad when you have to break up. Not worth it. Just stay out of the water. Stay out of horses. Keep horses out of you. 
Don't give any beagles, any naughty no-no touches. Don't worry about, you know, gorilla want to see your nipples and just, just keep on sucking. Mad Magic Productions. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, We've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.